I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago. Since then, you've seen his porch from downstairs? Mm-hmm. Is your mouth all glued up with Connie juice? I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you, and I like it. Oh, it's life boiling up inside of you. It's good. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprint. Join Garrett. You don't say that name. Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And they're returning Michael Ganeri. Rather high strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. All coming up only on Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians? The Wolf of Wall Street released Christmas Day 2013. Budget $100 million on the dot, apparently. Box office $392 million. Directed by Martin Scorsese and starring, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio. Here we are. This is the last of our already existing, our historical films on this one before we move into the present day with The Wolf of Wall Street. And this was a film that I remember seeing on Christmas Day, which I don't always do that. I don't, I actually usually don't end up going to the movies on Christmas Day. But this was one where me and my brother and a friend of ours decided what the fuck we're going to do it. And it was an interesting experience. It was an interesting experience because, you know, I knew this was an, an R-rated film, to say the least. And I saw this one at my hometown theater in Frankfort, Kentucky, kind of a, you know, small, Classic kind of American small town, you know, a little conservative in values, little, you know. And about five minutes in when DiCaprio is doing coke off of someone's ass, I had the slight feeling of, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is really the venue that this was meant for necessarily. I kind of felt like the city fathers were going to come in and shut it down or something like that and replace it with one of those movies where like a Christian donkey plays basketball or something. I don't know if you guys had a similar experience or not, but. That was my experience of the first time watching The Wolf of Wall Street. This thing was notorious from the get-go. The, the stories had already started coming out exactly what this was going to consist of. And I remember the big deal being, God damn, they made a movie about Wall Street almost three hours? That was on my mind going in. And, of course, you couldn't get past the lewdness that was coming out about it. And it was a curiosity to me because it was something different than what they had made before. We had mentioned in previous shows in this retrospective that they'd done a horror film. They did a gangster drama, pretty much. They did a historical piece so this was a very big curiosity could they make this watchable for three hours that was my curiosity and i had already heard the balfour story i hadn't read the book but it's hard not to know exactly what he did in wall street and everything that had come out about him and i did not like him from the get-go so I, my thought was could dicaprio one of the most likable actors i think in this world make this scumbag likable and i I'm like you. I went Christmas Day, and I had a similar experience as well. Unlike you guys, I saw this the day after Christmas, because I thought the point of Christmas was to spend it with your family. No. <laughs> Marty is my family, damn it. I went to Django the previous year, so this, yeah, it's kind of a tradition for me to go on Christmas, actually. It's a, so, a Decapris for you. 
well played. I, I, w- I would golf clap for that if I physically could at the moment. But speaking of traditions, my close friend Sean and I used to go to the movies every Christmas week to do some kind of a double feature because we were both home from either high school or college since we did it for so many years. And I saw this on a double feature with American Hustle. So I was at the theater for damn near seven hours between the intermission and waiting for the second movie to start. We saw this first. Ooh, wrong order. And, well, the reason we did was we wanted to see whichever one was longer first. Okay. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. I wanted to see that early in the morning while I was, you know, the caffeine was working its magic. And it was difficult not to know about sort of what Garrett was alluding to, all of the debauchery and excess that was going to be depicted in this movie. And I'll plead a certain amount of ignorance that I did not know this story from the perspective of Jordan Belfort. I knew all about sort of the corruption of Wall Street kind of being embedded in that system just from reading the Times and all that kind of stuff. But this particular story was something that I was not overly familiar with and didn't know the fine details. So I was not sure what to expect for two reasons. One, I was kind of questioning the casting of DiCaprio because I read that Belfort was supposed to be 21, 23, something in that range, and Leo by this point was in his 40s. I do know he still looked pretty good at this time, although I don't know what happened to him in a couple years after this because all of a sudden God said, hey, you're going to start paying up quicker because he's aged considerably more in the past decade than he has in between this and, say, The Departed. But the second reason was hearing that this was basically a comedy more so than anything else. Granted, Scorsese, we talked about this in The Departed, was much more of a black comedy than it is a gangster movie. He had done After Hours, which I would classify as a a comedy, albeit one that's pretty dark, about as black as how I take my coffee. But making this a story about victims, ultimately, all the hundreds of, if not thousands of people that were hurt in in these schemes, on the surface, hearing that that was going to be a comedy made me wonder what direction Scorsese was going to take this. And finally, the Christmas release to me was a bit questioning. To me, that just seemed like war- uh, Paramount not only wanted to get this uh, a pretty decent return on the part of the box office, but also for Oscar consideration. So I was very curious going into this theater, and I can't say that I was not anticipating it. I think of the, of the five, this would probably be the one that I was the most curious about out of the five uh, oh like uh, of the five Scorsese movies we've covered yeah okay it helped also that I saw this one in a theater which I think Shutter Island was the only other one I had seen in a theater there was a mystery quality to this somewhat because with Scorsese he takes so long in the edit compared to a lot of directors and everybody knew that this is going to be one of Paramount's Oscar players this year and everything like that so they want to get it out before the end of the year yeah like oh it's not going to come out before the end of the year. He's still editing it. And I was like, no, he's gonna, it's, it's going to come out. It's like, no, it can't come out. It's three hours long. No, it is going to come out. It is three hours long. And it kind of went like that, and there was all this stuff about how crazy it was going to be, how graphic it was going to be. You hear it's a comedy. I mean, you guys have touched on all this stuff. There was a lot of what the hell is this thing before anybody had seen it, and it had that amazing trailer. I thought it was an amazing trailer. Uh, yeah. I think went a long way at making this movie a three-hour-long R-rated movie about white-collar crime, a almost $400 million worldwide gross. This movie was a hit. It was a downright mm-hmm. hit. And that's, I mean, I think for one thing, it's a testament to the star power of Leonardo DiCaprio. So this movie begins very quickly. I don't know if you guys had this experience the first time you saw the movie, but it begins with that Stratton Oakmont logo. Yes. 
and the sort of commercial, the classy commercial with the classy voiceover and that kind of dignified air. And it sort of starts. And when it started for me, the first time I saw it, I thought it was just another studio logo. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. How that yeah. happens a lot. I thought MGM had redone their logo. Yeah, me right. too. And, and, you know, just a behind the scenes a bit of what's going on with this show. We have recorded this like at least a couple months after we did the previous shows. So I actually did a rewatch of this the other day. And every single time this freaking set of logos and everything comes up, it gets me every single time. I'm like, oh, there's another ad here. It's an interesting way of Scorsese opening this film. And by the way, I do remember this ad. I remember this way back when. So it just kind of takes you back a little bit. That's amazing. Yeah, so it throws you right into the movie, I think. First with this very seemingly very classy, dignified air, and then it cuts right to Leonardo DiCaprio and a bunch of dorky-looking stockbrokers throwing dwarves at a target that they rigged up in the office, and you get some of his voiceover, which is this very sociopathic kind of talk about how when he was 26, he made $49 million a year, and that pissed him off because it was three oh shy God. of a million a week. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. A million a month, or a million a week, yeah. Let's get, uh, let, let, let's, yeah, let's get into this. So, go into it. Let's get into it. First of all, before I do, I need to ask you, Mike, yes. you're a guy, you, you like classy type films and whatnot. Are you into the Wall Street scene? Do you watch any of these Wall Street films? Did you watch the Oliver Stone film? I, obviously you did because you're a big Oliver Stone mark. But are you into that whole scene when you watch these films? But no, I hate the financial system. Uh, okay. Deeply, intently, on every level, personal, political, cultural, just can't stand it. Hate stockbrokers. Yeah, no, anything involving big business, Wall Street, any of that kind of era. I don't hope I'm not offending all of our all of our uh, <laughs> listeners who are dignified on, Wall Streeters. On the, on, yeah, who are in their fucking limos right now on their way to fucking whatever. But no, I I. Do not like that stuff. Well, at one point I considered dropping out of college to hitchhike to New York and join the Occupy Wall Street movement, which would be a good, a good use of my time since that was a very successful movement. Yeah, so that's kind of where I am on that one. And yet, I think that not to get too ahead of it or whatever, but when you can make a movie like this or like, to a lesser extent, I don't think it's as good of a movie, but when, like the Oliver Stone Wall Street or something like that that can be set in that world, I think you can really at times hit on something that's really effective. And really hits the, oh God, I better say hits the target. There you go. Yeah, hits the target. (laughs) And yeah, we begin with this kind of look at the world of Jordan Belfort, who is the Leonardo DiCaprio character, when he's at the top of the world as the CEO of Stratton Oakmont, which is a company that he founded, which is an investment firm, and him and, and all of his guys. He lives in a mansion, got a fucking helicopter, and he's got a beautiful wife who's played by Margot Robbie and what was her first big role. And we see he's got even a, oh, the great, the, the moment where he's driving his Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Ferrari, right? Yeah. yeah. He's driving his Ferrari down the down the highway. And his, in his voiceover, he remarks that it's actually not the red Ferrari that we see him driving. It's a white, Ferrari. white Ferrari. And then the Ferrari changes colors as we see it. And mm-hmm. it's like Don Johnson yeah. in, in Miami Vice, he said. This was interesting to me because I know in the lead up to this, at one point, and Matt, back this up. Wasn't really Scott attached to this at one point? It wouldn't surprise me because it seems like any time there's a big scandalous type of movie that's based on true events, Ridley Scott's name is attached to it. And not to show my hand too much, 
But based on what Ridley Scott has done over the past decade and a half versus Martin Scorsese's track record, I think the right person wound up directing this movie. Which is crazy. And then Ridley Scott had Brad Pitt in mind for this role. And I'm trying to picture a Brad Pitt voiceover like this and a DiCaprio voiceover like this. And it's just like, Scorsese does not want you to like this character right off the bat. This is smug. This is talking down at people. And I found it to be a really interesting way to open this film. (laughs) Yep. For the record... Scott wanted Leo when he was offered this because Leo was the one who won the bidding war for the book. Yeah. So this was really a passion project of DiCaprio's. And when Scorsese first heard of it, he chose to do Shutter Island instead. And it was only after Ridley Scott had kind of backed off that he came back on. And I think one thing that did help also was that he did make Hugo in between Shutter Island and Wolf of Wall Street, so it didn't feel so laborious to watch another, like the fifth collaboration back-to-back. I'm glad there was a break in between and him doing something so tremendously different and off the beaten path for Scorsese. And for Leo as well, because let's not forget, right before this, he did Django Unchained, where he showed he could take the piss out of himself and play someone who thinks he's the genius, but in reality is kind of a moron. Well, and the other movie that he had this year in 2013 was Great Gatsby, in that that's also a movie about an obscenely wealthy New Yorker. It it is satirical in its own way, but is a much more romantic and sympathetic character that he's playing in that than in this. So it is kind of the yin and yang. And actually, I think there's even that quality with this movie and The Aviator. We went into it talking about The Aviator. Garrett, you were talking about how you just couldn't get on board... I think understandably so, with the movie's very sort of romantic, kind of swashbuckling kind of version of the life of Howard Hughes. And this is not the romantic version no. of uh, Jordan Belfort at all. And, and if for, from the beginning also, Scorsese is showing you, with the, with the car changing color, he's showing you that the story that Belfort is telling and what actually happened, they might not be the same. That his perspective on things is clouded by his own flaws as a person and that that might not quite be the reality. And throughout the film, he's going to be doing a lot of little things along the way that sort of show on the edges that maybe we're not getting the full story, that maybe we're getting one person's vision of the story, which I think is very Scorsese because he is one of the great, I think, subjective kind of filmmakers and that in most of his movies, you're watching them. And it's not that as a director, he doesn't have ways to, to get his own viewpoint out there, but you're watching them and he is showing you what the lead character is thinking and feeling in a given moment through his camera and through his mastery of form. Yeah. And I, and I want to go say on the record too, that I, Tanya took a similar approach just a couple years after this with Margot Robbie in the lead of that. And I want to say that I do like this approach. I do like it being from a character's point of view because you can go as abstract as you want because this isn't telling you that it's true. It's telling you it's the other person telling you the story. So I'm not saying it's not that I don't like it because of what this character is telling me. I'm just saying I'm not liking it because he's just coming off as a complete scumbag. (laughs) And it does not go away the entire film. As Matt said, we're going to get debauchery for three hours in this fucking movie and there's no moral high ground and that can work but we're going to go over exactly if Scorsese can get that balance yeah and so but once we get this taste of what his lifestyle is and also the copious and copious amounts of drugs that he's doing everything from quaaludes to cocaine every possible sort of substance that he's imbibing 
thing on a regular basis, including when he's trying to land a fucking helicopter in his backyard. We get that. We flash back now to him years earlier as a, a young stockbroker just out of business school. Not even a certified broker yet, but he's going his first day working on Wall Street in the 80s at the very height of the sort of the 80s Michael Douglas Wall Street type boom. And he's kind of a little wet behind the ears at this point. And I think in this scene and in the next couple scenes, DiCaprio does a good job at some of the a little bit more naive version of this character while still showing you that he is still at this point kind of a piece of shit. He's just not what he will eventually become with all of the vices and all of the greed just turned all the way up to 11. He's not quite there yet, and he doesn't quite know that that's what he wants to be. And I think he does that in a way that's believable without having him come off as some sort of Boy Scout. Ah, oh, gee whiz, what's the stock? What's cocaine? Yeah, he's not that. It's just that he's he's not quite the person he would later become. And this is where he learns the rules of Wall Street and learns how to get the investors on and how to keep up with the fast-paced Wall Street. And here we meet Matthew McConaughey in a dazzling, basically one-scene, maybe one-and-a-half-scene performance. Yeah. And, and he does not look well, yeah. because this was right on the heels of Dallas Buyers Club that he was filming, right. right down the street. And I remember him coming on the screen, I'm like, man, I had to look up on the internet, is, there, is he sick? What's going on with him? Right. And it, it just turned out he was filming Dallas Buyers Club. And this whole thing that he does, this, that became the calling card of this movie, this whole pounding of the chest, this was something that I guess Scorsese and DiCaprio saw him doing offset one time, because that's what he does every single time before he starts on screen. That's that's what he does. I and mean, I've been on sets where actors, you know, they do a, whole, a very number of things to get in the correct frame of mind in order to go in front of the camera and sure. act and get their voice right and they saw him doing this and they're like that's going to go in the movie I saw this twice in theaters and one of the guys who I saw it with he was doing this on the way home in the car it really rang true with people for some reason and I like that they incorporated this and it turned into what it did and it's so insane and you're right to point out that he does not look healthy in this because yeah he's filming Dallas no. Fires Club and it creates this so it's this weird thing where this guy there's no reason why this character should look like he weighs 90 pounds and yet he does and it's so bizarre that it weirdly I think helps the movie in a way that it's hard to explain yes. now, of course sometimes when people are on drugs they can lose weight in, in various ways this is kind of beyond that even that it's like his head seems so much bigger than the rest of his body. It's just he, he seems so bizarre and everything about and he's like, He can be a bizarre actor, McConaughey, when you just let him loose. And it just goes along with that. And he just really has to kind of set this maniacal tone that the rest of the movie is going to keep up. And it's like he is laying down that tone. So a couple things for me. Number one, it took 15 years, but this is what Titanic could have been. Let's not forget that McConaughey was going to play the Billy Zane character until he dropped out. That's insane. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's I, hard to think of two people with yeah. Like, less. Yeah. Yeah. And, and secondly, if Scorsese has a mission statement for this movie, it's laid out here where Belfort, he is the villain of the movie. But this is a movie that really emphasizes that he is just a symptom of the virus that is Wall Street because the McConaughey character... He works, it's an old school brokerage firm. It's old money. It's legitimate. Maybe it's some dirty tactics, but it's all done in the legalities of how Wall Street has operated. And he talks about how, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen on the stocks, and your only job is to make money for yourself. And the only difference between this and what Belfort will manipulate it into is the legitimacy of what we call old money. It's not a movie that is about Jordan Belfort. kind of is, but it's more so about how the criminals slash stockbrokers, I think both nouns are symbiotic, they are the worst side of American capitalism 
on full display. They create nothing except wealth for themselves. Absolutely. There's this interview that I remember I saw with the real Mark Hanna, which is the Matthew McConaughey character, the real guy who looks and sounds absolutely nothing like Matthew McConaughey, which is interesting. He's like not from Texas, for one thing. He's like very clearly like a, a lifelong New Yorker, and he's this very big kind of burly guy. And of course, it's years later, so he, he maybe he looked yeah. like him back then. I doubt it. And there's this interview with him where... It's after the movies come out, and the interviewer keeps asking him questions about, so in the movie and in the Jordan Belfort's book, you're portrayed as, you say all these things that it doesn't matter if you make the client any money. None of that is the point. The point is to make money for yourself and talk about how necessary it is to do drugs at work, and that's the only way you could possibly do it, and, and stuff like that. She's like, ask him all these questions about like all the stuff that's portrayed in the movie. And his response, I think, is, is really like what you're talking about, Matt, because he's like, well, you got to remember, I, did, I never worked for Stratton Oakmont. That's his response to everything. Is Jordan, he didn't even operate on Wall Street. They had an office in Long Island. That's his whole response <laughs> to everything, is not deny any of the substance of the allegations or anything. It's all just this kind of window dressing, and there's a really great moment that I'm going to get to later about another interview I read with one of the people involved. But at this point, after he teaches him all of the ins and outs of you know masturbating twice a day and doing coke at dinner or at lunch and, and and everything, DiCaprio, Jordan Belford, he gets his broker's license and he goes in for his first day at work and it's Black Monday, which was the biggest Wall Street crash since the Great Depression. And he loses his job when the firm closes down, which is an old money firm, and he's out on his ass. And him and his wife, who's played by uh, Kristen Milioti, in the classic Corsese movie role of the wife from the neighborhood who eventually the protagonist dumps for the blonde, the more yeah. glamorous blonde, like second point. Yeah, yeah like exactly. And it needs to be said, too, that in that book which I didn't read, but I've heard about. Balfour, he explains a lot of the debauchery that we see in this film, and he talks bad about a lot of different people, but one person he does not talk bad about is his first wife. He says that she's the one who steered him in the right direction, and he actually treats her very, very well. So I don't know if she got a lot in the settlement, and he was supposed to do that or what, but of all people he talks bad about, this woman is not one of them. And they're going over what he's going to do now that he doesn't have a job. And he considers becoming a stock boy with the whiz, right? Like nobody beats the whiz. And, you know, he basically like, maybe I don't have to be a rich kind of Wall Street guy. I could just be uh, just like an ordinary guy. And then he's like, oh, wait a second. Here's the job. Stockbroker at some strip mall firm. He's like, well, it's on Long Island. I'll go out and check it out. And it's this really kind of run down uh, slightly seedy type place. I mean, it's in a strip mall, you know. It's not quite working on Wall Street. And it's run by uh, Spike Jones with the little mustache, which uh, is going to establish a motif that will continue throughout this film, which is famous directors appearing in supporting roles in this movie. This is Spike Jones. I don't know why. There's a lot of them. What? This is Spike Jones? Yeah. yeah. I did not know yep. that. Of all yep. the times I've seen this movie, I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And almost all those directors sport some kind of facial hair in this movie. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think we might have cracked it. <laughs> I don't know what we cracked, but we cracked it. <laughs> well, and we're explaining all this because this is the Scorsese DiCaprio retrospective, and Scorsese directed this. But let's talk about the writer a little bit, Terrence Winter. Now, this is a guy who sure. he wrote for The Sopranos. He was executive producer for that show. And Scorsese and him worked very closely together because he created Boardwalk Empire. Now, Mike, I have seen maybe one episode of that show. I never dived into it. How different is this than what we see in Boardwalk Empire? Uh, I'd say it's pretty different. I like Boardwalk Empire. It was never like an A-plus show. It was a much more sort of stately kind of okay. show for something that was at least at one point for one episode directed by Martin Scorsese. 
it's like half historical type period piece and half gangster. So it's a little bit slower and more kind of, uh, you know, not sedate, but it's just, it's a little more measured in tone. Mm -hmm. It's not like this at all in its atmosphere and in its pacing and everything like that. In fact, the show that's what would in theory be more like it would be vinyl, which was not a good show. And is maybe the worst thing that Scorsese has ever been involved with, which is the short lived and too expensive HBO rock and roll drama vinyl. But we don't need to talk about that, Mm -hmm. but Terrence Winter, I think, did a, uh, he, was, he was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay. And a lot of the screenplay is, or a lot of what ends up in the film, a lot of the dialogue is improvised, which is not uncommon for Scorsese mm-hmm. in something like Goodfellas, Casino, this, something like that where he has actors that he clearly trusts a lot and he is very much putting them in a situation where he's be your character and interact with the other characters and create the sense of the world that they are and allowing them to sort of ad-lib a lot of the dialogue. This is a movie like that, so some of the stuff that is in the film is not in the script, but I've got the script in front of me right now, and I think it's a really strong structure on which any of the improvisation came into, and a lot of the voiceover and stuff is straight from the script. So I I think it's a good script, and I think it makes some very interesting and and bold creative choices, along with what Scorsese's doing and what the actors are doing as well, especially DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. And I'll say for the record, The Boardwalk Empire is that I would call it the sloppier version of The Sopranos and Peaky Blinders. It hits the right notes for both of those shows, Shows, but it doesn't quite know the music. And unfortunately, it's a show where it peaked in its third season. The Bobby Cannavale season? Yeah, the Bobby Cannavale season where he was the villain. Yeah, that's uh, good. That's far and away the best season, and they can never quite recapture that. But as a not a huge Sopranos enthusiast, my knowledge on it is pretty minimal as far as my experiences with it. So I can't speak on Winner as a writer outside of those two things. But the impressive thing about this movie is that as improvised as most of it is... There are only maybe one or two instances where you can feel like the riffing goes on a bit too long. It doesn't have Judd Apatow syndrome, in my humble estimation, so I do have to compliment the reins that Scorsese and Winter gave basically everyone in this cast. Well, we'll get to Apatow later, I think, because I think he's, his name will come up in a little bit. Not that he has a cameo in this film, although I guess he could have. I was going to say, has he? Is he, he? <laughs> is he yeah. one of the people who throws a midget? <laughs> he he could have he bought that. He could be somebody involved. So he shows up, Spike Jones is telling them that this is a very far from Wall Street investment operation where basically they push penny stocks on people. They push these shitty companies that are not going to go anywhere and they call it a bunch of schmucks, as the guy puts it. People who don't have a lot of money and you talk to them and you get them to invest some money to in these companies that are probably not going to go anywhere and they think maybe I'll put down enough money to help on my mortgage or help take the family out on vacation and everything and seemingly not a lot of money to be found there. Except, of course, with what DiCaprio finds out is that unlike with the big stocks, you get a 50% commission with the penny stocks. And so if you sell a lot of them, if you manage to sell thousands of dollars worth of them, you can make some pretty good fucking money. And this is where sort of the light bulb goes on over uh, Jordan Belfort's head. And we get that, I think, great scene where he pitches uh, Martin Scorsese, actually, on investing in, what is it? It's a radar company based out of Iowa or something like that. Some kind of aviation, ironically. Oh, that's funny. So this is Scorsese on the other end here? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And he's pitching this guy on it. He's doing the hard sell, really talking up this company, saying that they got a great future ahead of them. And of course, it's some penny-ante, shitty company run by two brothers in the garage. And as he's salesman tactics, and he's really reeling them in, 
everybody else, all the other guys at this office are all slowly kind of getting wrapped with attention at what he's doing. And I think it's this great, that great shot of DiCaprio on the phone and in the background, you see every guy in the office looking at him, trying to figure out how the fuck he's doing, what he's doing. And he makes that sale of, what is it, 10,000 shares or so, something like that. And he makes that first sale. And this is, I guess, where I, I'm going to show my hand a little bit. I think this is not only the best performance of DiCaprio in a Scorsese film, I think this is the best performance of DiCaprio in any film that he is in. I think this is the best he's ever been. Really? And I think scenes like that, yes, I think scenes like this are really showing him with all of the charisma that he has had over his entire sort of storied career, really using them. But not just that. I think that what makes this performance go one step beyond for me is that it has something that I call the inspired quality, which is something I brought up before when we were talking about The Aviator, where I said, that's a good performance. There's really not a lot you can criticize about his performance in The Aviator in terms of what he's being asked to do and everything. He's accomplishing it. But I said, that was not my favorite performance of his in the Scorsese film because it lacks a certain inspiration. It lacks a certain thing that he's bringing to it that nobody else could bring to it. Something that he is bringing to it that's not in the script, that's not even necessarily even in the director's vision. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing extra steps that are inspired, that I don't think another actor would or even could come up with. Things like near the end of the movie, he's filming a commercial, and he steps off of the helicopter that he's filming it on, and he does this jaunty little walk. And I'm like, where does it, how does he come up with, like, what is he, what is he doing? Like, how would he think of that? How would he be like, this guy should have, like, a cartoon walk here? Or some of the speeches that he gives at certain points. He has these contortions of his face and his body that are not even, like, what a real person would do, even the most unhinged real person would do. And he takes this character so far in terms of how sleazy he's willing to make him and how over the top he's willing to play him and how much of a, a loser even at times he's willing to make him. Some of his dance moves like during the wedding are just, just preposterous. That's why I think this is his best performance ever because it has that inspired quality to it where he is delivering everything that Scorsese is asking him to do. He's delivering everything that Terrence Winter is asking him to do. Yeah. He's delivering things even that the audience is not asking him to do and he's taking it further and I think that this is not only a, a truly capital G great performance but I think it's one of the great in time, we're realizing that I think that it's one of the great performances of its era in the sense of really just becoming kind of an iconic performance and an iconic version of the type of character that we see not just in film and in television, but in real life. And we can identify people in real life as Jordan Belfort types but he takes that further. Man, Mike, I can't go with you on that. I think this is a good performance. I really do. I think there's one in this that's better, but I don't think he takes that scumbag mentality and he diverts from it. I think there are chances that he could, but I don't think the writing and the directing asks him to, and I think that's a fault of the movie. I think this movie, it goes out of its way to make us show how bad of a person he really is, but there's just nothing in this performance that I could see as being better than the one he won the Oscar for. Honestly, I had my bad words about the aviator. I thought he was better in The Departed, quite frankly. I'm in a strange spot that I'm normally not in these discussions where I'm the middleman. He has to do a lot in this movie. He has to be the, the whirlwind that propels this three-hour jet for the entire time. There's maybe a handful of scenes that he's not in whatsoever. And you may not even need all five of your fingers. 
he has to be absurd. He has to do the pathos. But I, I do think what makes this work and what differentiates it from some of his other performances is the physicality that he has to bring to a couple of very key scenes that showcase a side of him that, quite frankly, I did not think he possessed as an actor. And his sole redeeming feature of the Belfort character is that he's not a complete dick to his friends, but there comes a point with everybody where he snaps at them. And you realize this guy is so far in his own head and up his own ass that the only reason he gets caught is because of his own stupid pride and lack of foresight to see where he was fucking up. But DiCaprio's performance, I think it is very good. I would probably put it, now that we're thinking about it and I've seen all these movies again, I would put it just below The Departed of these five. And I certainly think he's better here than he is in The Revenant. I can't go with you on that at all. Yeah, I don't want to go down the Revenant rabbit hole, I don't think, or the Revenant waterfall into yeah. cliffs the, or whatever. Yeah. The, the bear yeah. trap. Yes, the Revenant bear trap. That's a good way of putting it. This is where we meet another, I think, fantastic performance. Jonah Hill shows up as Donnie Azoff, who is a neighbor of Jordan Belford, who sees him one day after a big day of making sales or investments. Sees his fancy car and wants to know, why, how does the guy who drives a nice car live in the same crummy apartment complex that he lives in? And he tells him, yeah, I'm a stockbroker and I made, what was it, $72,000 last month or something, which is goddamn. Yeah. <laughs> goddamn. Could you imagine? <laughs> and this is in the fucking 80s. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's let's talk about Jonah Hill a little bit. You know, he, he was going through a weird phase in this time. He, he was trying to become a really respected actor. Just a couple years before this, he was nominated for an Oscar for Moneyball, a movie I still watch yearly. I love that movie to pieces. And here he is in a Martin Scorsese production. According to him, I heard in an interview with him, he took the SAG minimum of $60,000 to be in this film because he wanted to work with DiCaprio. He wanted to work with Scorsese. And he got more respect for this because he ended up getting another Oscar nomination for this. I find his teeth to be very distracting. It is so distracting to see him in this movie. But I do like him in this movie. But again, he goes along with everything that Balfour's doing. And once again, they go out of their way. They're like, well, I'm dating my cousin, but it's not really really a real cousin and all of these people are you just want to wring their fucking necks and i don't know if that means they're doing their job or if the filmmakers aren't doing their job making us like them oh this guy but i think jonah hill himself is doing a very good job in this role i like him a lot in this yeah i think he's fantastic in this and i wish that he i don't know i don't want to tell somebody that they should do something different or whatever but i wish he just did more stuff like this and he just kind of barely even acts these days yeah he just doesn't do a lot you know it's not and if that's what he wants to do then that's that's fine yeah, but he did he did that movie what was it the 90s what was what was that mid mid nineties? Yeah, which I thought. I mean, it was okay. It was just like oh, this is Jonah Hill. This is what Jonah Hill's doing now. But I'm with you, man. I wish he would do more stuff like this. It even got my mom. She saw Moneyball. She saw him in, and she's like, "Wow, he was really good in that." And then he comes out with a sitter that same year, and it's like that's Jonah Hill. I'm like, "Yep, he's going right back to his to what he was doing that made him famous." He just cannot pick a lane. I think he's so good here, and I think one of the things that. He is so good at here is that this is a great melding of his background in improv yeah. comedy with dramatic acting and stuff like that. Because he, he is playing a comedic – I mean, this movie's a comedy. It's a three-hour-long it comedy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like a comedy like, oh, ha, ha, ha. When people say, like, Parasite's a comedy, I'm like, uh, sure, I know what you're saying, but it, it's not. But I, I know what you mean or whatever. But, like, no, this is just a straight-up comedy. This is a movie where I think more than anything it's wanting you to laugh. I mean, it's not just like a wry chuckle movie. And Hill is playing a very kind of grotesque character. He talked about being distracted by his teeth. And yeah, and I think that that's kind of the point. He dresses so ridiculously in this. It's just like this hilarious, I think hilarious, burlesque of kind of 80s wasp type 
looks with the fucking sweater tied around his shoulders with the horn rim glasses and the with the whitened teeth and everything like that. It's such a grotesque kind of character. And he's play he's the Joe Pesci of this movie in the sense that if Henry Hill in Goodfellas or De Niro's character in Casino are the kind of more slightly cleaned up criminal character and then the Pesci character is just the completely unhinged id of the criminal mindset. That's what Jonah Hill's character is in this. It's just he has no filter, no inhibitions, and doesn't have the smoothness and the kind of controlling qualities of the DiCaprio character. It's just a complete maniac. He's just a complete animal. He can't control himself. And that's why I think it's so funny that he meets Jordan, and within two minutes, he's trying to get him to smoke crack. In a yeah, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't give a fuck. I can't believe that the guy from Superbad was in a Martin Scorsese movie. That was the most <laughs> baffling thing to me. And, and I don't say that jokingly, or, or to put him down. I like... Both sides of Jonah Hill. I like him when he does, you know, stuff like 21 Jump Street. I think he's very funny in that. And then I see him in this where he is just as good as Leo, if not more so. And this character is sort of the personification of the idea that money does not change who you are deep down. But money also gives you the ability to cosmetically change who you are. But whatever's wrong with you, you can't get rid of. Because this guy is all, like Mike said, he's all party boy exterior. And this is the kind of role that I think 20 years from now, if Jonah Hill starts making more movies, this will be something we look back on as a true turning point. So this is around the time that Jordan and Donnie start Stratton Oakmont, which is a completely made-up name for their new firm, which is going to be a seemingly superficially classier operation than the strip mall operation that he's been working, where what they're going to do is they're going to sell penny stocks not just to a bunch of schmucks and schmoes, but they're going to sell them to rich investors who can invest a lot more money and he can become tremendously, you guys can become tremendously wealthy by doing that. And this is where he recruits a bunch of, bunch of his guys from the, from the old neighborhood, I think in Queens, I think is the idea, to join him in this. And, and they're got a bunch of bums, basically. And they're played by an interesting collection of actors. Uh, you got John Bernthal. Well, makes perfect sense that he'd pop up in a Scorsese movie. Like, he just has that vibe, you know? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Which brings up a point, Mike. You know, we're talking Scorsese here. This whole retrospective is about Scorsese. Wouldn't you say that just looking at these guys and looking at the way he integrates this into Wall Street, don't you think this is kind of like a Goodfellas on Wall Street? Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. There's different – in his career, He's he's been directing for over 50 years now. In his career – Scorsese, there are different types of movies that you can find, you know, different themes that you can find within his filmography. You have his religious films and you have historical films and things like that. And I think you can see a total continuity between Goodfellas, Casino, and this. And then later on, The Irishman also forms a trilogy with those other two movies. What's interesting about this is it's Goodfellas with an MBA. That, yeah, what, yeah, that's yeah. a good, that's a great way of putting it. Because I look at John Bernthal, I'm like, you know, he may he would have been great in The Irishman. I don't know <laughs> where he fits in with this production, but he would have been great in like you know the, one of those Goodfellas movies that he did, you know, one of those gangster movies. Well, this is very much the capper. If you look at Goodfellas, Casino, and this, it's the evolution of how corruption became mainstream in the public eye. Because in Goodfellas, all the stuff that the mafia does is entirely under the radar. It's strictly illegal. Casino, it's quasi-legal, but only because of the, you know, the gaming regulations mm -hmm. and all that stuff. What you get to hear, the only reason, like I said, he gets caught is because he's sloppy and the law is able to deck in on it. So 
I do look at the these as three. I guess you'd call it his greed trilogy or, or his money trilogy. And then you could swap out the Wolf of Wall Street for the Irishman if you want to talk about just the way that crime sort of became less prestigious as time went on. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a moment, it's around this point in the film, actually, where DiCaprio is straight up wearing an outfit that looks like something that De Niro would have worn in casinos with the big sunglasses. Yeah. He has this colorful gang of guys. They all have names like, well, there's Rugrat, because he's got a bad wig. Well, one of them, Sea Otter. Yes. Pinhead is one. Yeah, Pinhead's one, but he he has a joke really. He thought jujitsu was a dancer or something. Yeah, it is real. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. Because these guys are completely out of their depth. Yeah. And the only reason they're successful is because Jordan tells them verbatim what to say. Yeah, exactly. He, he teaches them how to be stockbrokers, teaches them how to, you know, wear a tie, basically. And they, they just use the same kind of sales tactics that he uses when, when he's pushing these stocks. And they become very, very successful. And not only do they become very rich doing all this, but they get further and further into the depravity of it. You know, they're bringing prostitutes into the office and they're having three, four, probably five, six ways. You know, it's, it's, this is, uh, it gets, it gets very sexual around this point. This is a hard R film. It was almost rated NC-17. I wonder what that looked like. Cause you do watch this and you're like, I feel like if this was not made with the budget that it was made at and with the big names that it was made at, maybe the MPAA would not have been as generous. As forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. How, how weird is that? This is a huge production. And Scorsese at this point, he's not he's not a, a spring chicken. Like he's in his seventies at this point, making a movie like this, just full of so much debauchery. Within the first few frames, we have DiCaprio snorting cocaine off a chick's ass. This is not something that Hollywood usually releases. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a prude or anything. I'm not trying to downplay it. Hell, we know if I was twelve, thirteen, I would have just eaten this up. You know, I would have watched this on a loop. This was the kind of film, those loot comedies from the eighties or whatever when I was growing up, that I would have just devoured. And I'm watching this, and I, and I just cannot believe that they got away with this. And it also made the Guinness Book of World Records for the most F words used in a, <laughs> most most uses of fuck ever on screen. All the debauchery. Three times. I think he's, he's broken his own record twice. Like, he's I, like the Muhammad I, Ali of, <laughs> of fuck movies. I find that to be, um, I don't want to call it charming, but I love the fact that Hollywood still every once in a while makes movies like this. You know, no matter what totally. I have to say about the result of what they made, and we're going to judge it just on the merits of the, the way we usually judge it. I'm looking at this like I love the fact that it was actually made. <laughs> we live in a society that is so, especially here in America, that is so, unless you were Game of Thrones, where you didn't really yeah. have, you didn't have the restrictions on television, mm-hmm. especially on HBO, just a, a standard sex scene between two people where you see frontal nudity had become such a rarity by this point to where the fact that this was so excessive was both shocking and immensely satisfying. And I say that as a gay man where 90% of this does not appeal to me, but I appreciate that they had the inhibition to let them do this. And doing the math, they say fuck about 3.16 times per minute. So the, the total is 569. The only movie that comes close and it's within 10 is Uncut Gems, which is shorter. So they probably per minute, they say it more. But I sort of look at this, the, the way they use the language. I think Scorsese is actually making a point 
and Garrett, you're going to laugh when I say this because it's a running gag for me. It's like that episode of South Park where they say shit 160-something times. And I think Scorsese is saying that in this context, the word has no meaning, especially coming from these frat boy douchebags who just say it every so often to where it carries no weight anymore. Totally. Because it really, it, at a certain point, you in the audience, which this is why I think the movie being as long as it is, is actually necessary. At a certain point, you in the audience, you do actually become kind of like immunized to not just the language, but the sex and the drug use to the yeah. point where it just becomes you're not even shocked by it at a certain point no it becomes background noise exactly exactly because that's yeah. the life these guys live they have to say and actually fuck in order to just fucking make it through the day it's just how they live their lives so because it's completely overtaking how they're living the audience i think kind of needs to feel that too and you know you mentioned seeing this with american hustle earlier Matt, and I, if someone likes that movie, that's fine, but I think that I remember the vibe in that year was American Hustle had come out, and that movie is so much inspired by Scorsese's movies and by Scorsese's crime movies and everything like that, and I think that had come out before, or at least had screened before Wolf of Wall Street, I might be wrong, but there was a vibe of like, oh, has David O. Russell, has he made the good Scorsese movie, even though Scorsese has a movie this year? And then this came out and, in my opinion, completely blew it out of the water in a way that is just like embarrassing on David O. Russell's part, I think, in terms of this is the real guy making a real Scorsese movie that is not just a, him repeating himself, but is doing something that is in line with what he's done before, but in a new environment taking it to new heights and i think the vulgarity of it and everything is so necessary in that regard and the fact that he's in his 70s when he makes this and is still making a film that has the energy of a young man i think is so impressive because there's a lot of directors who can't keep that quality and admirable i think on his part as much as this film got a lot of controversy not just few directors look at his contemporaries yeah. coppola de palma George Lucas, and even Spielberg to a certain extent. I don't think any of them have the energy that Scorsese does at this point in his life. Well, Mick Garris tells a story where him and Spielberg are pretty good friends, and he tells a story on his podcast that I listen to on a regular basis where he says that around the time this movie had come out, he always told Garris, he said, look, he goes, there are things in my head that would make people's head spin over the fact that I was a guy who made E.T. and all these movies that families could go to. He said, but he just didn't want to do that just to kind of hurt his image or whatever. And that's why I kind of have a lot of respect for Scorsese because Scorsese doesn't give a shit about any of that. Like he's making this just on the fly and he's telling his actors to just roll with it. And the script is just background noise, <laughs> kind of like the sex is background noise in the film and I'm not using that to put him down I'm saying that's a very respectable quality that he actually does have it in him to do something yeah, like this and thankfully hopefully we never see Spiel, uh, Scorsese have to make a ready player one Oh my God, Spielberg, you have sold out. The day we do that movie is the day I stop this podcast. <laughs> you mentioned Ridley Scott earlier, and I, Ridley Scott's a director I like a lot. I, I admire, and, and I think that his last two films were both, especially the last duel. I thought the last one was genuinely great, and House of Gucci I thought was good in a more kind of shaggy, flawed way, but. I thought both of his last two movies were good, and, and I think that him doing that in his 80s is very impressive. But even even that comparison is is one where you're like, damn, Scorsese. So this is the point where he's interviewed by Forbes magazine, and this is such a crucial scene, I think, because this is where Jordan Belfort is being profiled by Forbes. He thinks it's going to be this very flattering story, and it comes out, and it's a total attempt to re reveal him for what he is, for the con artist that he is. And it's the one that names him the Wolf of Wall Street, and he is furious, and he feels 
feel so insulted and pissed off. And he comes into work the next day, and there's a crowd of guys who want to work for him because this film got a lot of controversy and still has. There's people who are still on this fucking beat almost a decade later. I I don't know. I want to be sympathetic, but I'm not. Who who think that the movie is, it makes him look good or it makes people want to do the things that he does. And this scene is to me so important because it shows that you can write a fucking Forbes article that reveals bit by bit how this guy is a con artist and how he's greedy and selfish and just just lay it out in bare terms. Even that is going to make people want to go work for him because the human capacity towards greed overwhelms for a lot of people overwhelms conceptions of right and wrong and the mere fact of these people's existence people like jordan belfort it's the mere fact of their existence and their the reality of their success that makes a lot of people attracted to them as figures and there's no amount of condemnation there's no amount of ridicule that you can put them up to that is going to dissuade everybody because there's just something in, and this is maybe getting a little philosophical or whatever, there's just something in a lot of people, maybe all people, maybe some people to a lesser degree and some people to a greater degree, that is drawn to people like this guy and wants to do what he does. It's part of human nature because the groundwork for this was set in Oliver Stone's Wall Street where I think that movie is much like a movie that we're going to talk about very soon, Garrett, that is carried by a phenomenal performance by Michael Douglas. Gordon Gecko is unquestionably the villain of that movie, but his mantra, the greed is good line, was taken to heart by so many people that he became an icon to counterculture and corruption, Mm -hmm. which was not, I don't believe that was Oliver Stone's intent. So I think that what Mike was talking about, how there there were people that were just lined up to go work for Belfort just by reading and interpreting it as fake news. It's sort of the Trump mindset, not to get overly political, but there's just people that are instinctively, no matter what you say, they see the end result. And whether it is something moral or philosophical or superficial as money, people will overlook who they have to step on to get there as long as they reach the finish line. Yeah, that's an interesting approach because I was always on that side, Mike, that you detailed of this kind of glamorizing that life because I – not to – give too much away but by the time this movie's over he still hasn't paid for his sins he's in prison playing tennis but i see your point as well and it's kind of interesting that you say that because now i'm actually seeing that yeah no matter what you say about the guy even after this movie had come out how many people are going to want to be on wall street it's starting that cycle that you said matt all over again where people wanted to be gordon gecko now people want to be jordan balfour it's a really really interesting approach that both these directors have taken to this material and i think something has happened out of it that they didn't intend and i think that's the nature of film and i do like that you guys pointed that out a lot of cocaine well and the thing that i think interesting about this film in comparison to the oliver stone film wall street and this is where i think scorsese takes this and dicaprio this is sort of going back to what i was saying earlier takes this in an interesting direction is gordon gecko is depicted negatively in the film wall street because he's depicted as greedy selfish he wants to have these companies and strip them for parts no matter who gets hurt along the way he's willing to lie and cheat and manipulate people and everything like that but he is still played by michael douglas as this very on top of it smart, in-control type guy. That's not meant to glamorize him. It's just meant to be a depiction of how a lot of these guys do operate. What I think is interesting about this film is that Jordan Belfort, even with his great wealth and success, is often just so fucking idiotic. 
he's and, and and he looks like a loser despite being played by one of the most charismatic movie stars of his generation. There's so many things we'll get to it later, but when he has sex with Naomi for 11 seconds, the movie is doing all these things to undercut him to even to to show this guy thinks he's the fucking hottest person in the world. He thinks he's the biggest coolest guy, and it's doing all these things to undercut that. And it's still attractive to so many people, both within the movie and outside the movie, which is why I think that there's no way you can put the bumpers on in a movie to make sure that nobody mistakes this for something that they should imitate. Someone's going to interpret it in that way just because that is the person. That's human nature, I think, really. And this is where also we see Kyle Chandler for the first time as the FBI agent who starts to keep an eye on this um, mysterious Jordan Belfort figure. Here's a character I would have liked to have seen this movie revolve around a little more. This guy comes in, and we're going to have a pretty famous scene show up here pretty soon. I wish I could have seen more investigating into Jordan Balfour's doings and how it ends up being his undoing towards the end of the film. And what I find interesting about this character is he's riding the subway on the way to work, and I think that's a lot of what drives him to bring this guy down because Balfour has gotten everywhere he's gotten by taking money from other people and, and living off of that. And he's living on yachts while this guy's taking the subway to work. And by the end of this film, he's still taking the subway to work. Yep. And Balfour's in <laughs> in white guy prison playing fucking tennis. I wish I could have seen more of this character. And I think that's one fault of this movie. We're not seeing people like this who are trying to bring him down. But again, you can make the argument that it's all told from Jordan's point of view. Kind of like I, Tanya did with Tanya Harding. So you can't really say whether or not this was a good or bad thing but to me i think this would have been a good thing to do was to tell it more from this perspective i actually like how it's handled because coach taylor's character that's what i'm going to call him because he will always be coach taylor to me no matter what in the same way that john ham will always be don draper is that he's the only character in this movie who is entirely a good person and he's the guy who is repressed more than anybody under the guise of quote-unquote the system. I think that's actually a commentary by Scorsese about how even the people that won in this story, yeah, he was caught, but even the people that brought him down still were not elevated to the lifestyle that they kind of should have gotten. And in a weird way, this is kind of a parallel to the Tom Hanks character in Catch Me If You Can. Interesting. In a lot of ways, he's less bumbling. He, he doesn't have that ridiculous accent on top of other things. But I like Kyle Chandler in this movie a lot, and I think they use him just enough because this is told from Balfour's perspective. I also like the implication, at least this is what I got, that there almost wasn't any investigating to do because it was so brazen. That's sort of what I think is interesting is that basically from the minute he appears on screen, that Kyle Chandler, the Coach Taylor, excuse me, the Coach Taylor character knows that Jordan Belfort is bad news. And it's just the question of when's he going to slip up? Because ultimately the slip up that happens is not even really... One thing I think is so great about this movie is that Belfort is given so many opportunities, fucking quit it and get away with it scot-free, and he keeps turning them down. And in the end, it eventually catches up with him, and his punishment is not even a, really a punishment. So it's like that's – yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If everybody at home is keeping track of how many directors are going to appear in this film in supporting roles, okay, this is your next chance because here we are introduced to Rob Reiner as Leonardo DiCaprio, as Jordan, as Jordan Belfort's dad, Mad Max. And this, I think, is probably, I would need to check the numbers and, you know, consult all of my sources and everything. I believe this is probably the first and, yeah, probably the last time that Rob Reiner played Leonardo DiCaprio's father. I might be wrong about that, but I believe that's true. 
I think he's very funny in this film. It, it, good to see him do a little acting, because instead of yeah. off making whatever shitty movies he's been making for the past 25 years. <laughs> well, Matt and I are going to be getting to a few uh, Rod Reiner films here. Really? What, 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 yeah, we're, we're, gonna do, we're, well, we're doing a Stephen King right now. Oh, yeah, oh so. right, okay. Speaking of yeah. cocaine. Yeah, I like Rob Reiner in this too, Matt or Mike. I'm I'm exactly with you. I think he, every time he's on screen, he always brings a really really funny wit to the film. Whereas instead of just doing the whole debauchery and seeing these guys throw midgets around, we're seeing Rob Reiner yell yell at the screen. And I love just hearing Rob Reiner say "fuck." There's something about hearing <laughs> Rob Reiner say "fuck" that makes me laugh every single time he does. And talk about pubic hair. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> when in, in a conversation, you can tell is like ninety five percent improvised absolutely yeah. yeah he makes me laugh but a lot of this has to do with he reminds me so much of my dad when i was when i was growing up every time the phone rang he would just go fuck god damn it and he would just get up and answer it <laughs> i have lived this for uh, some of my earliest memories are of that i do think it's absurd that he's leonardo dicaprio's father <laughs> of all things but it, it was kind of a classy move to get him in a Scorsese movie. And to be honest, it's the best thing Rob Reiner has been involved in since he went after the tobacco companies in South Park. This is also where we're introduced to another character around this part. There's a big beach party, and Jordan meets Naomi, who is played by Margot Robbie in, in her first major performance, who is, I think at this point in the film, she's a, she's a model, and she's a very beautiful lady. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this Margot Robbie character. Uh, yes, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, this is where the affair between Jordan and Naomi begins. And this was the first time, I, I guess I had watched, I think, one episode of NBC's Pan Am or whatever. Maybe that was, I don't know, ABC's Pan Am or whatever. But I saw one episode of that, so I guess that was where I'd seen Margot Robbie before, but did not make much of an impression there. But this, I think, was where most of the world was really introduced to her. And it is a pretty incredible introduction just in terms of, I mean, look, I'm kind of beating around the bush a little bit. She's an incredibly beautiful person and just objectively in a classic kind of glamorous style in a way uh -huh. that like I feel like had not been seen in a while in a Hollywood film. There's somebody who could have been a sex symbol, not just in 2013, but also in 1983, in 1953, you know, even further back. Yeah, she could have, that... could have been in the Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, where she could be a star in any era. Yeah. And Matt and I just covered Suicide Squad, and even Matt, the gay man of this site, said, "Yeah, she's a fu she's fucking beautiful." And I completely agree with you. But here's the thing: when I mentioned earlier that there's a performance that surpasses DiCaprio's, I was pointing out Romargo Robbie. I think this is a star-making performance. Mm -hmm. I think this is the movie that got her Suicide Squad. This is the movie that got her I Tanya. This is the movie that catapulted her career, and she is fucking phenomenal in this movie. I love her in this, and there is not one other character I can say that about. I find her to be unbelievably charming and good in this movie. So speaking of American Hustle, this was the ironic thing. Jennifer Lawrence should have taken notes on Margot Robbie for American Hustle. With that kind of very broad, kind of controlling woman, I think Margot Robbie puts Jennifer Lawrence to shame if you're comparing those two performances. That's why I chuckled because I... Watching those movies back to back, I'm like, oh wow. We have we have someone who holds her own against Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jennifer Lawrence is floundering against Christian Bale and Amy Adams throughout that entire movie. She looks like a 12 year old girl playing dress up throughout that entire movie. Whereas here, Margot Robbie acclimates herself tremendously well. And I so, think the only other thing I had seen her in was About Time, which had come out right before this. Which, if you ever want to see me cry, you should have been in the theater when I saw that movie. I cried so hard watching About Time that the person I saw it with asked me the next day if I was okay. Yeah, I would totally agree with the praise for her performance in this. Fantastic. And I think deceptively so, because I think this character is very tricky because the way that Jordan Belfort sees her 
in the film is just as the ultimate trophy wife. She is just the most mm-hmm. beautiful woman he could possibly hope to obtain, really. That's how he sees it, that he could dump this woman, his first wife, who he clearly does have some actual, genuine human feelings for, but he's willing to give those up to fully go for her. And at first sight, she's a golden status symbol for him. And the film has to portray her kind of sexuality and her glamour and her hold on him in that way. But she also has to emerge from it as a fully formed human being who has a full wants and wishes and desires beyond just what Jordan Belfort has seen her. It's so tricky because we have to see the movie somewhat from his perspective, but she also has to provide the stuff that allows us to see that she is more than just what he sees her as. And she does an excellent job with that. And I'm not from New York. I'm not from that area. So I can't speak to how accurate her accent is. It seems very accurate to me. It se- she seems to, I would not have guessed that she was Australian based on. I wouldn't have either, but it slips every once in a while. Okay. Yeah, every every once in a blue moon slips out. But also more importantly, her character is as superficial and shallow as all the men are, but in a more discreet way. You have to really be paying attention. Right. Yeah. To, yeah. To there's that. a scene towards the end where I really hate her, but there's only one scene. And whereas the other guys, every single time they're on screen, I hate. So she's she's batting a better average than the other guys are in this. Well, and his marriage falls apart to his first wife in a very, I think, very sad scene where she catches them in the act and it dissolves. I think. It's outside of fucking Trump Tower in New York. And it's like... <laughs> it's just, that's one of the most ironic things yeah, possible. Right. And it's the, kind of the last moment. Well, there's, what I think is interesting is there are moments throughout the rest of the film where DiCaprio does kind of show that this is a human being underneath everything else. But it's just he's buried those elements of himself so mm-hmm. far down. And this is one of the last moments of that uh, where his marriage falls apart to his wife. And he does seem genuinely ashamed of what happened, but not enough to actually stop himself from pursuing what he's going to pursue. Mm-hmm. So they get married. He undercuts it, too, because he says, I felt terrible. The next day I filed for divorce and moved Naomi into a house with me. Yeah. And there's so many moments like that in this film where his character does have this two seconds of self-realization, two seconds of an epiphany, and then the very next line, he backs away from it. Or alternatively, he will say something and the seediness of it is apparent to us, the audience, from some detail that he says. Like like when he tells a story about the guy who, on the first day of moving into their new office, had sex with one of the... Oh, yeah, the guy, assistant. The guy killed himself. Yeah, yeah. And then he reveals that he killed himself a few years later. And then he's like, anyways, and he moves on. It's like for two seconds, he's like giving us the height of insight that his, his character can reach. And it, it gives us as the audience enough to know that that is not the film's perspective, even if it is the guy telling the story's perspective. And so this is also around the time. Well, this is where she comes home to the apartment and the butler is basically throwing an orgy. And this is another, I think, another good moment of showing the hypocrisy of the character where all the fucking movie up to this point, all Belfort and all of his guys have been doing is just having constant sex in the office, at home, at the fucking beach house, in cars, every fucking place imaginable. And then his new wife comes home and the butler's having an all-male orgy. And 
that's so horrifying to him once he hears this. And he's, like, freaks out. He's, oh, my God, on the couch, no. And they have this whole thing where they fucking dangle the guy off the balcony and then fucking turn him over to the cops, and the cops are on his side. Like, it's uh, just a great example of the movie showing that the system is on Belfort's side, as despicable as he is. The cops are on his side when he explains what happened. Yeah, and he's also a deplorable piece of shit where he resorts to mafia tactics of dangling him off the side of the building. And this is around the time that Donnie gets the idea to work with Steve Madden of the shoe company, who's an old buddy of his from school, that they're going to work with him on the first IPO, the initial public offering of Steve Madden's company, and they're going to take a piece of the action as they just really push the stock on all of their investors. They're going to pump the stock up artificially as they take more and more of the money. And Steve Madden is played by uh, Dustin Hoffman's son, Jake Hoffman who is an actual school friend of Jonah Hill's. Yeah. And the real Steve Madden, again, this is kind of like the thing with the real McConaughey character, where Steve Madden's complaint about the movie was that he thought he was too nerdy in the movie. That was your objection to it? That was, <laughs> Not that you were involved in the fucking financial scheme? <laughs> not only are Jake Hoffman and Jonah Hill friends, but they also both played Adam Sandler's son in the movie Click at different stages. Oh, yeah, fuck. It's the weirdest fucking coincidence. Yeah, that is weird. This is also, oh, another fucking part. When they do the IPO and uh, they're trying to get everybody all pumped up and Thomas Middleditch uh, from Silicon Valley is one of the young stockbrokers there. He's the guy with the bow tie and he's cleaning out his fish tank. And Donnie comes over and fucking eats his fish because he's not impressed with him. And it's fucking insane. This is my favorite thing that I've ever read about the real life stuff involving the movie, which is that they interviewed the real life guy that John Hill's character is based on. The real life guy's name is Danny Perouche. And he had threatened to sue Paramount over if they used his name. So that's why his character's name has changed. And interestingly, the guy McConaughey played, they didn't change his name at all. So he clearly didn't have an issue with that. But they interviewed Danny Perouche, and he's talking about it. And they're like, so the character who's based on you, he does some pretty outrageous things. Do you have a comment on that? And he goes, the film is a complete lie. It's totally inaccurate. It's inaccurate from beginning to end. It's a completely distorted depiction of who I am. It uses all these fake stories to make me look like a worse version of who I am. And they're like, so you've seen the film? And he goes, no, I haven't seen the film, but I saw the trailer. And there's a part in the trailer where the person who's supposed to be playing me is walking around with a chimpanzee. And I think that that is offensive and terrible. I would never do anything that involved harming an animal. I would never do anything that would put an animal in jeopardy. That's not the kind of person I am. It's completely inaccurate. And this film is offensive for even implying that I could ever be involved in something like that. And the interviewer went, oh, okay, so I guess the part where you eat the goldfish, that was made up, too. He goes, no, I did that. (laughs) That's the kind of person this movie's about, you know. Yeah, and and Jonah Hill apparently actually ate a real-life goldfish. Yeah. He pulled a Jared Leto. Seriously? Yeah, he actually did it, yeah. He's fucking Christ. I don't support that. I'll say that. I don't support that. But this is where Belfort does one of his pump up the troops speeches. This is where I think he really shines as uh, one of the many places I think in the film where he shines as an actor is in these speeches because it really is just an opportunity for him to just fucking go hog wild. It's a little bit like it's a little Andrew Dice Clay. It's nice 80s comedian, crude. And he does this again. This is like. The inspired quality that I talk about is there's just things in these speeches that he does. And I'm like, how did he fucking think of doing that as an actor? Where it's like, we talks about, he's like, he's like, I want to go to the chocolate factory. Comparing the situation to like Willy Wonka. He goes, I want to be with the Oompa Loompas. And he's doing this weird 
movement with his knees. But it's, I'm just like, how does he fucking think of that? That's one of the moments. There's little moments like that throughout the movie where I'm just like... Are we at the point where the chick shaved her head? Uh, oh, that was way earlier, but that is a key moment, I think, as well. We can talk about that if you'd like. Yeah, let's talk about that a bit, because that I got really uncomfortable watching that scene. Totally. <laughs> it's a very very uncomfortable scene to watch you look at the actress's face i don't know if it was just a great job of acting or what but she looks genuinely scared to death that they're taking her hair off and apparently the actress they hired to do this they actually took this off they didn't just put a wig on this chick she backed out last minute and dicaprio went and got a friend of his she jumped in this role she jumped in and she actually did have her head shaved it's a very very disturbing scene to watch it is it's extremely disturbing i think it's the key scene in the movie in a way or not key, key scene is strong but i think it's kind of the movie in a nutshell because what happens is they're celebrating big landmark that they've reached and so they go she said if we reach this she'd shave her fucking head and pay her ten thousand dollars or whatever and they shave her head and it's, it just looks really kind of gross as they do it mm -hmm. and she does not look comfortable with them doing it and they don't do it all the way so there's little strands of hair that are still there yeah. and, uh. she, and, and then they give her the money i think this is such a great moment and she's holding the cash, and as she's holding it, she, she puts her hand up to where her hair used to be, and there's strands that are sort of falling off, and she sort of brushes them away, but she's not even looking at her hair, not even paying attention to her hair. She just looks at the money, and then she gets up, and everybody in the office is celebrating, and they're all jumping up and down and going crazy, and she just kind of scurries off, and she joins the mob. That's the story of the movie in a nutshell. People will give up their dignity, they'll give up what they want, they'll give up their self, to get the money and join the mob, you know, to join Oof. the group. And they also and, become entirely, you lose your individuality. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is also important because it goes into the idea that Jordan Belfort is just a result of what transpired for all those years. Absolutely. And this is where the big scene of another, I think, fantastic scene of the FBI agent, Coach Taylor, and Jordan Belfort meeting on Belfort's yacht. And this is a movie that's very high energy in mm. its editing, in its soundtrack. Yeah. And then here the movie really slows down. Best scene in the movie. Because I'm looking at Kyle Chandler's face as he's on this yacht. And he does such a really good job of depicting the fact that he is jealous of what Balfour has here. He wants what he has. He wants to take this guy down because of what he has and what he thinks he should have. And this is a very good cat and mouse game that ends with Jordan just throwing a bunch of money around. And uh, I wish there were more scenes like this, quite frankly, when they slow it down. Mike, you outlined it perfectly because that's exactly how I feel. This is the one time the movie slows the fuck down. And I just wanted more of this. I want Scorsese to kind of expand a bit instead of just keeping on with the fucking debauchery and everything that's going on. I can only take so much of that. And this is pretty much, this is two hours and 55 minutes of that. And there's five minutes of this and i don't think it's a surprise i think this is the best scene in the movie it's a great scene and i see what you're saying i think that the reason why this scene stands out in the sense of why this scene had to have a different tone is that this is the one part of the movie where it's the fbi agent's movie in that scene in the sense that he is the one setting the tone of the moment because belfort is a little bit spooked not really that much but he's spooked enough that he's like i gotta tuck in my shirt on this one so to speak i gotta just for five minutes slow the fuck down not be a fucking animal for five minutes and play nice with this guy and if i smile and shake his hand and fucking bribe him without being too overt about it then everything's gonna go down smooth and he's wrong and that's why the scene has that different kind of vibe to it You'll also notice that as soon as he gets off that boat, he descends back into being a child where he's throwing $100 bills at him. He openly says, get the fuck off my boat. You get the sense that he is 
bottling up his true feelings until it is physically impossible for him to no longer do so. Because the breaking point is when he gets caught in a lie and almost gets caught in bribery towards the end of that conversation. I think this is one of the scenes where the movie slows down, but I can't call it my favorite scene in the movie that's coming up. Interesting. I'm trying to think what I'd call my favorite scene. So after this meeting, Belfort realizes that, you know, he might need to do something a little international in order to hide his money from the FBI, from the feds. He goes off to Switzerland and he meets none other than the artist himself, Jean Dujardin, as a Swiss banker. He had 15 minutes of fame and this was the 13 minute mark. Sure. What's this role well, in this movie? He doesn't <laughs> speak English, so that's the thing. I think yeah. you could see that during that Oscar season where he just didn't speak English. You could learn a couple words and everything like that and so I guess he learned enough words for this movie but I think he just was not interested in doing Hollywood movies this is a big cast and it's like a lot of people popping up for one or two scenes to make an impact McConaughey Desjardins Joanna Lumley as Aunt Emma the Margaret Robbie character's aunt uh, who I, I was sort of introduced early in the movie I didn't I didn't talk about it so much but I think she's also fantastic in this movie I like when they go overseas and you see people's the the versions of greed or vice that exist in other countries being slightly different than the versions that exist in America. I like that vibe where the Swiss banker is just as much of a scumbag as Belfort is, just in a different way. Like where he begins the meeting and he's like, we have to do 10 minutes of blah, blah, blah before we can start talking about laundering money. We have to do some pleasantries because we're nice Europeans and everything like that, which I think is funny. And this is also where Belfort gets the idea of using the name of his wife's aunt in Britain, who's a nice, fancy English lady, to be the manager of the Swiss bank account, put it in her name and everything. And he also tries to... Yeah, that scene where you see her, you hear her voiceover. It's one of two other voiceovers we hear in the movie. We hear a little bit of the Swiss banker, and then we hear a little bit of her. And again, I kind of like just the idea of for five seconds, let's hear someone else's perspective on this one, just to step outside for a little bit. I think it makes for a, a richer experience. The scene with the banker, that shows that greed has no boundaries. They're symbiotic because they both have internal monologues talking shit about each other. Yeah. Exactly. Which I think that that's very funny. And I love that he got Joanna Lumley, who is sort of kind of the British Carol Burnett in a lot of ways. So I, I was very happy to see her. It's not that the movie slows down here, but I like that we're getting outside of America and we're having to see, okay, how did this guy who accumulated so much wealth come up with these ideas to avoid getting caught? Because this whole section is what delays the inevitable for a large portion. It's not until she dies that a lot of the wheels start to come off the car. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that in this movie. They just seem like little character moments, and then they come into play later in a big way in terms of how they are part of the house of cards that's going to fall down involving Belfort and his whole operation. The next scene is like that, where it's Donnie and Brad, who is the John Bernthal character, in, I think, a very funny scene that is... I. It has the vibes of being almost entirely improvised. You really get the sense that there was almost nothing yes. in the script between Donnie and Brad, where he shows up. They're supposed to do a an exchange, yeah, exchange of money in a suitcase. And Donnie shows up, and he seems like he's high as fuck, but he's not, and he's sober, and he does like a little Willy Wonka coming out of the factory and doing the little somersault and standing up like, "Hey, he's like, I'm sober." And it's he's just fucking with him the whole time. The cops are catching on to him, and Bernthal is so uncomfortable with what's going on. In some ways, one of the smarter characters in the movie, which ends up not 
helping him out in the end. A funny scene, I think, which will come into play in a big way down later because when Brad gets busted, Jordan doesn't know that, and it's going to end up playing a part. I think now, iconic maybe is a strong word, but I think this scene, even at the time, kind of had a status of, like, people like, you got to see the fucking quaalude scene in the wolf of wall all right this scene i remember seeing it in theaters initially and laughing my ass off i thought it was very 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 funny just the whole idea of him seeing popeye and then it it just has that whole notion that quite frankly i've never seen scorsese do before i know he did comedy with after hours but he never really showed the sensibility before so the fact that he could make a scene like this and make it as funny as it is it's mind-blowing to me and i did always laugh but like the more times i've watched it the more i'm like man what are they doing here? It, it is funny, but at the same time, it's kind of sad just to see these guys who have wives, have kids, just kind of fall into this whole bit of just not being able to grow up. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, just, I mean, making themselves really into, like, infants. I mean, just in terms of their Yeah, dad, right. And little things, I mean, the Popeye is hilarious. The fact that they're watching fucking Family Matters when they're taking yes. the quaaludes is funny. In the balloon, going higher yeah, and higher. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> they do the classic drug thing of uh-huh. you take some and you're like, huh, I guess they're not working because I'm not high as fuck. And then I better take more. And then it's like, yeah. So I'm like, this is a, a pivotal scene also in the plot because Jordan's private investigator, who is Bo Deedle, fucking I miss in the morning, <laughs> standby Bo Deedle, like, and just a weird, scummy type former cop turned media guy playing himself, who was really Jordan Belfort's private investigator. And believe me, if I fucking worked wow. for Jordan Belfort, I would not want to play myself in a movie. I would be too ashamed no. of that. It should also be said, too, that there's a hint of sadness to the scene, too, because, you know, once he gets to his car and he's driving, he thinks he's avoided everything, but then it turns out that the car has been destroyed because he actually took a few things out. And then that's what kind of brings the scene down to earth, shall I say. You know, it's it's not as funny as you thought it was. Absolutely, exactly, because it's a hilarious scene of him. uh, Uh DiCaprio in, I think, a brilliant piece of physical comedy. To watch a big star, a big dramatic star like this, and I think he has often been accused DiCaprio of being maybe a little self-serious as an actor. Mm-hmm. And I've said it on this yeah. podcast. I've said it, I said it in, the, in The Aviator. I thought that exact thing. And to see him just do straight up, just it's just straight up comedy. I mean, just do straight up physical comedy of a guy, him trying to get into the fucking car, like open the door. And yeah, so fucking funny. And it, he drags it out for 45 seconds, just him trying to get in that car. Yeah the best scene in the movie. It is brilliant physical comedy from a guy I did not think was capable of having the self-image to degrade himself like this. It's not just the crawling. He rolls down the stairs, but he misjudges how many there are. He's drooling uncontrollably. There's this great bit. I don't know if this was planned where him and Jonah Hill are wrestling over the phone and the cord snaps and hits Jonah Hill in the face. (laughs) That could not have been planned because he, it, that's got to fucking hurt. Do you remember those old phone cords? But once you get to this point, the movie does a really good job on Scorsese's direction to where whenever something is played for comedy or it's very broad, trying to get an emotional rise out of you, there's a quick cut to something else that'll bring you back down to earth. Like when they're fighting and they just cut to his daughter just looking in the... Uh, yeah. That tells you everything you need to know. And it does a good job of sort of, you're literally, the audience here coming down from that high. That is your black coffee to try to sober up. 
And the fact that when he does come to, nobody is fucking amused or satisfied with him. His wife is, I, don't, I couldn't tell if she was the nanny or she was a housekeeper, but, but one of his employees who, who's there. And of course, the fucking cops, they're not fucking pleased. No one's fucking amused. And then he goes out and sees that, no, he didn't just barely make it through. I mean, yeah, it's just a great undercutting of the comedy of the moment and sort of revealing a lot of the darkness of it there. So he's been busted a little bit. This is my whole thing with the movie, is why it needs to be as long as it does. He keeps needing to be given this, these chances to get out of the game, and he keeps needing to turn them down and getting away with it, because that's the story of white-collar crime and financial crime in America. Is just, yeah, we keep letting these people just get away with it. Yeah, slip yeah, under the fingers. Exactly. Yeah. And so his lawyers are saying, cut a deal with the SEC. You won't get any prison time. You won't get any real consequences, but you're going to have to step away from Stratton Oakmont and you have to step away from trading in stocks that you're done with that point in your life. You're going to have a shit ton of money. You just get out of that and that'll be it. And you can be done with it. Oh, this is, uh, again, if you're paying attention at home, this is director number three, John Favreau, appears with a mustache again as his lawyer. And he does his sort of retirement speech to Stratton Oakmont. And this may be my favorite scene in the movie. Wow. Yeah. It's a scene where he goes on a emotional journey within the scene itself, which is not the case for most of the scenes with this character because for the most part he just is at one tone for every scene because that's the kind of person he is. He's just a raging id. And here he shows up, he gives the story and I wrote down a few key quotes here just because I think that this is so much a part of what the film is uh, saying is he's given a speech and they're all thing to him. They're all the people that he's collected along the way and Donnie and his father are there and everything. And it begins in a very kind of serious and even kind of somber sort of thing where he is stepping away. And he is sincere when he says that he loves the world that he's created. There's an emotional component, too, because he's so fucking rich already. And if he just gets out of the stock world, he's still going to be fucking rich. So it is about something more than money. There is a, say emotional is maybe strong, but there's the adrenaline of it. There's the idea of just, I'm going to be the fucking master of the universe. And I'm going to be in charge of my own fucking destiny. And there's that element of it. And it's, that's part of the reason why he ends up deciding not to retire, which he has this big speech where he's saying goodbye to everybody at the firm. But then by the end of it, he has realized over the course of the speech, no, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not going. I'm going to stay right here, and I'm going to continue being the fucking Wolf of Wall Street. And it's, this is what the movie's about. He keeps give, being offered these opportunities to just walk away, and he keeps saying, why should I walk away? I'm going to keep getting away with it, so why should I walk away? And that's what happens here. I think this is fantastic performance by DiCaprio, playing the sincerity of this guy's scumbaggery, playing the fact that this guy is earnest in his evil. That he means what he says, even though he's completely full of shit, if that makes sense. That's why I think this is such a great scene and such a great performance, is that it's a, a full-bodied, kind of full-throated version of somebody who is just completely loathsome, and it would be easy to just play in a way that limits them, rather than fully fleshes out their loathsomeness, if that makes sense. I don't know. It seems kind of limited to me. I don't see the greatness in DiCaprio's performance in this movie. Again, I think it just might be the fact that he's doing a good job and I just don't like the character, but I don't see any earnestness, any regret or any set He doesn't, he doesn't have regret. That's the thing. That's what's incredible, I think, is that it's a full human being who has no regret. It's a full human being who has chosen to be one thing. That's what I think is incredible about it because it would be easy to play this guy with more layers than the guy actually has. Or to play him as a limited version of one thing. What he's doing is he's playing him as a human being who has decided to make himself into the worst version of himself. To intentionally make himself into 
less than a human being, a human being who's choosing to be less than a human being. And that's wow. what I think is so and, and that's it, It's such a hard line to walk. It's such a hard balance to find. I didn't mean to interrupt. Matt, be the tiebreaker here, sir. <laughs> I agree with Mike. I think this is one of the only true moments of genuine sincerity that you get from Jordan as a person where he does feel that he built something that, while to us being people that are not remarkably wealthy, although who knows if you listen to this show, they're the ones suffering, but yet the people that are profiting are people that he brought in. They've got their livelihoods. Everything that he built is owed to him deep down. So I could see that he's kind of self-absorbed to a point to where he does feel genuinely incapable of stepping down, but I, I don't think the movie praises him for that. If anything, I think it condemns him more because you see Rob Reiner just shaking his head being like, oh my god, what, what, what the fuck are you doing? So I don't think the movie has ever apologizing for him. The line that I wrote down here, I wrote down a few lines throughout the movie. The One of the ones that he says here, he, he compares Stratton Oakmont to Ellis Island and if you, I don't care where you come from, all that matters is what you do when you're here. And he says, Stratton Oakmont is America. And he means that in an entirely positive way. And the line is meant by that character in an entirely positive way and is meant by the film not in an entirely positive way at all. And the inverse of it is just a few scenes later. It's like literally like two minutes later where the subpoenas start coming in by the FBI and Jonah Hill's character takes one and he pisses on it and everyone in the office is shouting, fuck you, USA! Fuck you, USA! Two minutes after he said Stratton Oakmont is America and they're all cheering because they're like, yeah, that's the perspective of these types of guys is that as long as it's it's working out for them, as long as it's bringing them money, as long as it's making them power and wealth, as long as it's doing that for them, they fucking love America. America's great. America first. I love all that stuff. And then anytime the worm turns at all and they have to face any kind of degree of consequence, they have to face any kind of investigation by the government or any kind of scrutiny by any kind of the institutions that are American society, well, then it's, fuck you, USA. What do we need this? What do we need the government for? Why is the government sniffing around? Why are they going into here? Why are they cracking open my safe? I don't need this. What What is that for? It's the double-edged thing of that. And it's, it's, it perfectly, perfectly, to my mind, typifies this type of perspective. And when I first saw the movie in 2013, that shift from Stratton Oakmont is America into fuck you, USA, that didn't stand out exactly. And then the last time before this most recent watch that I saw the movie was two years ago, and I just thought, this is so much what we hear from our elected officials and what we hear from the billionaires and what we hear from the people who have all the power in society is just that exact mindset of Stratton Oakmont is America, and then two minutes later when you have to face any kind of consequences, fuck you, USA. That is maybe the key to the movie is understanding these two scenes, is that This type of person means that in both cases. They mean both of those things. They really do believe that Stratton Oakmont is America, and then two minutes later, they'll fucking piss on a subpoena. Yeah, it definitely shows that these guys just, they don't give a fuck. In turn, it just makes me not care for them, which I know was Scorsese's point. But what I'm saying, it doesn't make for an enjoyable movie on my end. Because, again, I can only take so much of this. This just goes on and on and on. We're getting birds fly into airplanes, but yet they still find a way to land safely. None of these guys are paying for any of this, and it just drives me fucking nuts. But I'll get to my whole perspective of that once we get to the wrap-up of the film. So... Once the subpoenas start coming in and the SEC and the FBI are breathing around the corner and they're being investigated, and there's this scene, there's the montage of all of the guys in the crew kind of being interviewed and they're just doing all the non-answer answers and everything. 
And they're told, don't leave the country. And instead, they decide to go to Italy. And while they're in Italy, Aunt Emma dies. And Jordan realizes he has to get to Switzerland immediately in order to forge a document in order to get the Swiss account transferred back to him. And this is another example of the international system of big business kind of continuing to operate because when he's on the phone with the Jean Dujardin character, the Swiss banker, he's like, yeah, get over here, get your ass over here and, and fucking do it. He's like fully cooperating with, with the white collar crime of it. So they're on their way to Switzerland, they're in the yacht, and they decide to continue going into it even though there's going to be a storm. And it's an insane storm, and they think they're going to die. Massive tidal waves everywhere. And then another line I wrote down was Donnie says, I've done a lot of bad shit. I'm going to hell, Jordan, which is another, I think, just a great moment of showing that these are guys who, in moments, in a pinch, they can recognize the difference between good and evil, and they're choosing to ignore it. When they think they're going to die, they do think they're going to go to hell because they can recognize that they've done a lot of bad shit. But they are completely in fear that they're going to die. He decides he's not, he's not going to die sober. He fucking has them. as they're about to be crushed by a fucking tidal wave. He has Donnie go and get the fucking quaaludes and shove them into his mouth as, as potentially the last thing they ever do, really showing the depth that these characters are willing to sink for. But they end up getting rescued. And as they're being rescued, he looks out the window and, 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 and I think is another really typical kind of moment. The plane that was initially supposed to rescue them explodes when a seagull gets into the propeller and everybody on board the plane dies. And this should be a fucking as close to, hey, a message from God, like fucking ship up or shape out, buddy. And he even in his voiceover, he says, she fucking see that? Like He basically breaks the fourth wall a little bit and decides that he's going to reform his ways, but not really. This should be the come to Jesus moment, right? But like you say, Mike, they just keep throwing these at these guys, but they don't fucking stop. And I would like to see some repercussions for that. Well, and then he's filming a, an infomercial, which is such a great, the thing it reminded me of this time watching it was the wig shop commercial in Goodfellas, where Scorsese literally, he's tried to film, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, he, he wanted to film it, and then he, he was like, this needs to look shittier. And so he hired a real local New York small business commercial maker to do the wig commercial. This needs to have the tackiness. And, and I think he actually he gets the tackiness here with this really fucking sleazy commercial where Jordan Belford is there. And he's fucking like I said, the part where he gets off the helicopter, I think, is just so he's just so smug and has that great moment. This is one of the things where I'm like. It's so smart, I think, just smart filmmaking, where you're seeing the commercial, the infomercial, as an infomercial. You're not seeing them filming it. You're seeing it as it would air on television. But then in the last moment of it, he gets arrested while it's being filmed. It's like this great, you think you're seeing one thing, and then it goes into another type moment. So he's been busted by the FBI. He's been ratted out by the Swiss banker because of a very complicated financial scheme that doesn't even involve him. It involves the founder of Benihana. And again, another thing, the crime and the corruption goes so much beyond just this one guy. You turn over any fucking rock, you're going to find some white collar business scumbag and just the shots of the Benihana's commercial while DiCaprio's voiceover becomes increasingly unhinged is like really, really funny. He's been busted by the FBI and they want him to rat. They want him to do exactly what uh, Henry Hill did in Goodfellas. They want him to rat. They want him to wear a wire, go into... Mm -hmm. Stratton Oakmont offices and like cord evidence of all the financial crimes to testify to, to do all the things, turn over all those guys in his firm. This is also directly Wall Street, the third act, where Charlie Sheen's character wears a wire. Yeah, right, exactly, right. That, and that's the ending of that one, yeah. 
Here, there are a few times in the movie where we talked about the scene on the yacht earlier with the FBI agent. This is another scene where things kind of slow down a little bit is when he goes into the office and he has the conversation with Donnie and he writes down on a note, I'm wearing a wire, don't say anything that's going to incriminate yourself. And they have this very sad, I, I think it's sad, not like I feel bad for these guys because they're complete scumbags, but it's on the personal level of this guy his friendship with Donnie is going to, no matter what, it's going to fall apart. Whether he testifies against him or not, it's going to fall apart. If he wears the wire and does testify, it's going to fall apart. If he doesn't testify against him, it doesn't matter because he's, he's at this point has to rack. So it's, it, that's going to fall apart. And it's a moment of key importance because the bonds between the individual people within Stratton Oakmont has been sort of, it's not a redeeming quality. But the characters think it's a redeeming quality. They think that that is what sort of justifies, in a way, their pursuit of wealth and their complete just abandon when it comes to morality, is they talk about that they have a connection with each other. And it ends up being completely uh, demolished by their own greed, because not only does Donnie turn him over once he gets the note, but then Jordan turns around and he fucking testifies against everyone else there anyway. So they've all testified against everybody. They all end up being so greedy that they're that it's not even like Goodfellas where the one guy rats and everybody else lives with the consequences. They all are ratting. The, 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 the greed completely overwhelms them. This whole scene of Jordan and Donnie, this was very truncated from the exact thing that happened. It's very complicated how he gets ratted out here, but it does a good job of narrowing it down to a little note here, which I think is good. So I think the writing at the end of this film is very well done. I think the way everything gets ratted out here, and what I find interesting about this is after all this is done, and then Jordan is doing this huge speech, again, a rallying speech, and he's talking about this girl who she came to him and asked him for money and he gave it to her. He doesn't give a shit about this girl. No. He doesn't give a shit about any of these people. And that's what I really just can't find myself to like this movie as much as I would like to because I'm finding this guy in these speeches and there is nothing genuine about him whatsoever. I would like at least a little bit of genuineness here. Something like away from the spotlight of being in front of these people where I actually see a character in development here, but I don't. I see it just a complete asshole who gives a shit about nobody but himself. Well, he do you not think that he's genuine in the scene where he is wearing the wire and he gives him the note? I think that is genuine in the sense that in that moment, he does believe that. And then he eventually ends up deciding to rat. So you could say, well, his honesty only, it was skin deep. Or, you know, when uh-huh. he scratched him, it, it, it eventually broke down. Would you not think that that's one of his rare moments of genuineness in that one specific scene? Because he doesn't have to I do don't. that on the note. He could just rat him out right then and there. I don't. I think he did it just for, for nothing but himself. I, I just feel like everything about this movie is about what he can get from his own financial gain. Well, in the in the end, that ends up being what it's about. Yeah. Matt, again, you're the tiebreaker, sir. Um, I don't know where I fully stand on it, because it's a difficult conversation to have whether or not this movie is asking you to 100% sympathize with Belfort in any sort of genuine human aspect. And the reason why I don't think it does, so sorry, I side with Mike, once again, is that this is not a movie that comes off as angry or overly preachy, which I think it very easily could have been. I think it's portrayed as as very matter-of-fact, and all in all, he never does anything that is you would consider to be overly dignified. He's not the Robin Hood figure that the writer haphazardly compares him to, so I never view him as a truly good person at all. 
Well, and I think that the thing where you're where you're kind of hitting off that it doesn't come off as overly preachy. I think that one of the secrets of Scorsese as a filmmaker is that he's made so many movies about just absolute scumbag people, from Raging Bull to Goodfellas to this to all kinds of films. And I think that the secret in all those films is that he he manages an incredible balance between having a sense of good, evil, sin, virtue. Obviously, he comes out of a very religious background, but he recognizes in the characters in his films, no matter how awful they are, and he's willing to portray them as awful. Jordan Belfort comes off as completely awful in this film in just about every single moment. But I think he recognizes the qualities in them that are human in the sense that he recognizes that he is the same in the sense that he is also human as anybody in the films, both good and bad. So that includes both the Kyle Chandler character and the the Caprio character in this film. I think he recognizes them as equally human. Now, that doesn't mean they're equally good or bad, because obviously it's not. I mean, Kyle Chandler is probably the single most, with the exception perhaps of Jesus Christ, is probably (laughs) the most morally upright character in Scorsese's entire filmography. And he puts him in the same movie as this guy, Belford, who is close to as despicable, I mean, he doesn't commit a murder like some of the other characters in Frustrated movies do, but he's probably just as bad and just as, you know, despicable as, as anybody else he's ever portrayed. That is where I think the lack of preachiness comes from, is that he recognizes sort of the full kind of breadth of human reactions to things, that human emotions, human experiences, and I think that that is going to tie into to eventually when we get into the last scene, but I, I realize now that I kind of skipped over uh, a moment, which is the moment where his marriage ends, which is a truly difficult scene to watch. I mean, it's just really, really kind of harsh scene where he is not realizing that his wife is clearly trying to get out of the marriage and then she announces that she is and he has a complete freak out. He hits her, he breaks his sobriety, starts doing cocaine again, and not only that, but he reveals that he's, he's storing it in the couch the whole time. If he was, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He tries to fucking take his daughter away, gets in the car, fucking crashes that his three-year-old daughter is crying, and it just is a complete, this is as despicable as this character can get and does get, and it's just truly dark moment. I mean, it, it's equivalent to the moment in Raging Bull where the De Niro character attacks both his wife and his brother. It's a hard scene to watch, and it's and a, a rare scene in the film that has truly no comedy whatsoever. As everything is falling apart, his marriage, his family, his attempts to stay out of jail, and you get that montage of... I mean, it's the moment in a Scorsese movie where everything falls apart, and something like Casino or Goodfellas, the characters start getting whacked, and their bodies are discovered. But in here, it's the FBI comes in to shut down the office and raid everybody, and it's set to that... Lemonheads cover of Mrs. Robinson. I don't know why that's the song, but it works so well. I don't. I think it works so well. Lemonheads, like lemon quaaludes. Oh, you think you think there's a connection there? Yeah, I think this soundtrack is. I don't think this is one of Scorsese's best compilations. I have to be honest. Well, if it was one of his best compilations, it would be among the best ever. But yeah, right. I, I would agree. I mean, well, it's a weird thing because he clearly he's not. I don't think he was keeping up with the. Hit music of the 90s, I'm guessing. Yeah. Vanilla Ice well, in this movie. 
No, but what I do like about it is anytime we have a scene, and Scorsese does a good job of this, and Matt, you and I have covered films that don't do a good job of this. We know exactly where we are judging by the music that's in the background. And I do think Scorsese has a good finger on that pulse of telling us where we are, actually telling us when we are at each particular time. So I'm actually in the minority here. I do believe this is a very well put together soundtrack to tell us exactly when we are, because again, this is another movie, Matt, we've covered a few of these this year that jumps all over the place, but we always know where we are at each particular time. And I respect that. I think the best moment musically, well, I like the limit head scene, but also I like when a uh, hip hop hooray starts playing. Oh yeah. And they're doing, uh-huh. Hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Yeah, you no, know, totally, he, he, totally. And it's, yeah. it's that, the, the tackiness of, you know, not not, Absolutely. not not to diss on Naughty by Nature too much, but, you know, just the very dated <laughs> quality of it and just, like, just these white guys just, just doing this. Their record sales tell the story. Yes. Exactly. Oh, jeez. I had that out. We'll get the Naughty, we'll get the Baz Luhrmann <laughs> Naughty by Nature biopic in a couple of <laughs> Everything's falling apart. Stratton Oakmont gets shut down and Jordan goes to jail and he's all worried, right? Except no, no, there's no reason to be worried. He's basically at a hotel. It's a white-collar minimum security jail where he gets to play tennis, and there's people doing yoga in the background, and it's just four years. So that's his punishment. After three hours of all of this depravity and greed and crime and just absolute decadence, that's where it all ends up. That's the bow on it. Even after that, he had so many chances to stop what he was doing. He had so many chances to cut a deal, to agree not to come back, to testify, to do all this, to do all that. After all that, that's the worst possible punishment he can get is four years playing tennis in a white-collar prison. None of these assholes get anything. I, I, I fucking hate that. And by the end of this, he's doing motivational speaking. He's still robbing people yeah. of money. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that's Scorsese's point, sure. but it's just... Again, it's like I'm preaching to a choir here. I just I don't feel like it is good movie viewing for me as seeing a guy depicted like this. It's just it's fucking enraging to me. I can see where you're coming from. I don't feel that way at all. I zero percent feel that way, but I do totally know what you're coming from in the sense of for me. I think what it is is that I think that the filmmaking is so electrifying from every aspect of the direction and the acting and the humor. I think is so electrifying. I mean, there's there's there, there's not a better way to put it. I don't think uh, for me that that's what keeps you into it. The characters are completely repellent because they do have to be. And you're you're right when you talk about that. They're they're some of the worst people ever depicted I think in a a major American film and it's the filmmaking of Scorsese that keeps the thing chugging along and we get to that last scene and we see the real Jordan Belfort and which is another thing that I think is testament to DiCaprio's performance is that you know there's a lot of movies where they're about a real person and at the end of the movie you see footage of the real person that is the main character of the movie, whether it's something like in uh, like in Elvis recently, where you know at the end of the movie they show some clips of the real Elvis, or Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody does the same thing with Freddie Mercury. I recently rewatched uh, The Fighter, and that ends with a little moment of the real guys being like, hey, here mm-hmm. we are, we're involved. Yeah. Uh-huh. And usually what the point is, subtextually, what you're supposed to get from those scenes when you throw them in at the end of the movie, is you're supposed to be watching it, and you're supposed to go, as an audience member, you're supposed to go, oh, okay, yeah, wow. Remy Malek, 
does look like Freddie Mercury. He did have those awful teeth or whatever. You know, whatever. I mean, he doesn't, but whatever. But, you know, that's what you're supposed to be thinking. You're supposed to be watching and go, wow, he really nailed it. He looks and sounds just like him. He looks, wow, they really got it. When Jordan Belfort shows up at the end of this movie, the real Jordan Belfort, I didn't know this when I first saw the movie. I don't think anybody did. You know, he's not a famous person in that regard, like someone who's instantly identifiable. But once you do know that and you, you watch that scene, to me, that gives you a, it gives me a huge appreciation for DiCaprio's performance because he does not look and move and sound like the real Jordan Belfort. The real Jordan Belfort's voice is not like that. It's mm-hmm. not like DiCaprio in the movie. He doesn't sound like that. He doesn't move like that. He doesn't speak like that. His, his way of doing his pump-up speeches that he's doing as he's introducing DiCaprio in the last scene is not quite the way that DiCaprio is doing it. It's not a 180, but it's not that close, that is, to me, a sign of the strength of DiCaprio's performance is that he was not it's, imitating somebody. Yeah, and that's what I find interesting is, you know, if, if this had been Scorsese doing this movie, say, 20 years ago, and there was a Jordan Balfort that Scorsese wanted to do this about, and he got De Niro. Oh, maybe 30 years ago, because that's when their relationship was still strong to do this. De Niro would go head first. He would dive into Wall Street. He'd live in the freaking warehouses for months just preparing for this, and hang out with these guys, and hang out with the wives, and probably want to be on Wall Street for a number of months before he actually went into the filming of the film. And DiCaprio did none of that. DiCaprio was playing DiCaprio this entire time. And I think that's what this movie, its strength is. I outlined this in the beginning of this podcast is it relies on DiCaprio's charm to carry it. And I think in that way, DiCaprio does do a pretty good job of this because I think he proves with this movie that you don't have to do a deep impression in order to make an impression. And I respect that about him, that he didn't do that and he didn't live the character before they actually started filming and we're seeing that depicted on screen. So yeah, I did respect DiCaprio for that. Yeah, and because he was looking at it as an actor and going... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. who is this character? Not... Who is this real person? Because there's a Venn diagram, but they don't completely intersect. And in this last scene, it's this scene where he's doing the sell me this pen moment that he did earlier on in the movie, but he's doing it as a Mm -hmm. a teaching seminar. After all this this guy's fucking gone through, people are paying to hear his fucking secrets. And you get that final shot of the audience looking at him. And what we're seeing is not DiCaprio. It's not Belfort. We're seeing the people who are paying money to learn... Jordan mm-hmm. Belfort's secrets. And that is our last image in the movie because that is the thing that keeps these people in power. It keeps them rich. Mm-hmm. Is that ordinary people, people like even me. I talked about how much I hate Wall Street, how much I hate billionaires and millionaires and, and, and things like that. When I saw the part in the movie where he says, I made $72,000 last year. Or last month, excuse me. I made $72,000 last month. There was a moment this time as I was watching, I think I paused the movie for a little bit to just kind of reflect on that. And I was like, God damn it, why can't I have $72,000 last month? Even me, you know, even 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 with all of my you know, mm-hmm. perspective on everything, there is still part of, I think, everybody that looks at somebody like Jordan Belfort. And maybe he's too despicable for everybody to do it. But somebody like him and goes, well, why can't I have that? And... That's the last image of the movie because that has to be the last image of the movie. That's the fucking story. That's what mm. I think. I don't think there's a better possible ending you could put to this film. Because to me, that is the whole story. Because if you just think about this as a story about one guy that was real fucked up and did a lot of fucked up shit for a lot of years, okay, that's one guy on a planet of 7 billion people. Explain the world around him. Explain why we keep looking at this guy. And yeah. that's the movie. Well, that is The Wolf of Wall Street. 
three hours, and then over the credits, I didn't notice it the first time I saw the movie, because I think I just, I left before the credits were over, but as I was watching it this time, it ends with, like, a, like a remixed version of McConaughey's chest-beating chant. Very strange. Yeah, that's The Wolf of Wall Street. Really big movie, uh, I think has kind of solidified a certain amount of its place in recent film history. On a scale of 1 to 10, what, Garrett, do you give The Wolf of Wall Street? All right. I depicted in the course of this podcast, and you guys agreed with me, that this is pretty much Goodfellas on Wall Street. I am going to alienate a majority of listeners by saying that I am not a fan of Goodfellas. I respect the filmmaking that's in it, but I'm not a fan of the movie itself for a lot of the reasons this movie depicts in that there's not one character I actually like in it. Margot Robbie's character comes close, but towards the end in the divorce and everything else, again, I'm just not on her side. Now, when I reviewed this, I reviewed this movie for a website I was working for at the time, and I gave it a pretty high score. I believe I gave it an 8 or a 9 because I had such a good time in watching it. But watching it with a critical eye, there's just so much of it I don't like. But I think Scorsese's brilliance in this movie is depicting this not in an uncompromising way and that we're not supposed to like them. We're just seeing them depicted. And by the end of this, I respected what he was doing with it. But man, to me, this is about 45 minutes too long. I think right when we got the apex of the whole Quaalude scene, there should have been a bit of a wrap-up. But we're dragging this on, dragging this on, dragging this on. I think there are good to great performances here. I think DiCaprio, as the guy who we have revolved this retrospective around, I think he's good. I don't think he's nearly as good as Mike is saying. But I respect somebody like Scorsese. I respect somebody like DiCaprio for doing something as bold as this. And we could go back as far as Jupiter Ascending. And say that that is a bold picture, but it doesn't come off nearly as well for a lot of reasons that maybe we'll get to when we get to the Rakowskis. But the boldness that these two did, I mean, you respect somebody like Jonah Hill to do a movie like this. You don't expect somebody like Scorsese and DiCaprio to do a movie like this. And to not have that moral high ground that I've been preaching about this entire podcast, I believe it's one of his strengths now that I think about it because they don't go to those depths of giving this guy that they're depicting on screen doesn't even have. And if there's another flaw I find in this is that by the time this was over, I'm one of those people, I mean, we're doing an entire Stephen King retrospective and I'm reading all those books to prepare for it. And in preparing for this, I was all keen on getting this book to actually read about it to maybe give it a little bit of an insight. But I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to read the Wikipedia article based on it and the comparisons because this movie made me not want to give him another dime. Like I was just like, I'm not going to give this guy any more fucking money. Let me just get a little bit of an outline just so I can give my views on it. And you know what? Again, I respect the artistry here. I respect everything that they're doing. It's such a hard movie for me to get through just because there's so much of it that by the time it's over, my head's spinning. I'm still going to give it a six because I do think you have to see it just to see what two guys at the the top of their craft can do if this has been done by anybody else i think this would be just unwatchable but i'm not saying it's unwatchable i think it is very watchable especially for somebody again i came out of this with somebody who had no idea about the life on wall street and he really liked this movie and i think what this movie does is it makes it seem fun and it makes it very entertaining but i don't get anything after i'm done watching it so yeah this is a six out of ten for me matt I don't have as long of a dissertation as my colleague. I think he wrote his to be as long as the movie. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I was watching this again with, with a more critical eye than I did, because I've only seen this movie maybe three times, including this most recent viewing. And I was struck by 
the way that this movie will sort of hit you in the stomach with things that are faintly disturbing. There was the guy who married the woman that blew every guy in the office, and then he wound up killing himself. I like those tonal whiplashes, because for a movie about quaaludes, this is a cocaine movie through and through, as far as the energy and the sharp bitch slap of sobriety that will hit you every once in a while. And I think that's why this movie does not feel like a laborious three hours. This was not like a Terrence Malick movie post-2001, where I just wanted to rip out my eyeballs, cover them in the <laughs> set them on fire because I wanted to get out of that theater so much. All in all, I think this is a very strong movie. It's stylish, it's bombastic, and I can't get out of my head how audacious a lot of this was. And I was wrestling with the idea of seeing the real Belfort at the end, how I was going to feel about that. Because this is a movie how Jordan Belfort wants to be seen, and it's up to you as the audience to decipher what you make of it. And this is the... F- I'm not going to go that far, I'll... I won't say that. The Departed's my favorite of these five movies by a long shot, but this would be probably a close second. I'm going to give this a a very enthusiastic 8 on 10. Well, for me, we've talked for a while about this movie. I think I've made a lot of points. This is a 10. This is a 10 out of 10 movie for me. Man. Yeah. This this was the best film of 2013. It's Leonardo DiCaprio's best ever performance. And he's made so many great movies that it's weird to say it's among his best, but it's among Scorsese's best films post like 2000 of the era that we've been discussing here. I would say probably I may be like the Irishman a smidge more, but we're talking about masterpieces. I think this is a masterpiece of a film. To make a three hour long comedy should be impossible. To make a movie about a character this repellent should be impossible while still making them repellent which this movie does. To do any of those things should be impossible. The fact that he does those things and makes a movie that is so quotable, that has so many memorable moments, that has this fantastic, incredible, inspired lead performance, totally committed lead performance at the center of it. And to do it all at this point in his career when he could just rest on his laurels, hard to think of a a more impressive series of feats for me. This is a 10 out of 10 masterpiece. This is the best film that we've covered in this series, and I have no regrets in saying that. Man, 10 out of 10. You know, I wanted to say, this series has been so... I mean, I've, I've loved revisiting every single one of these films with you guys, these conversations. They've been really stimulating and really entertaining. I hope they're entertaining for the audience. And, you know, I think that I, it's going to be hard, you know, saying, saying goodbye to this series, but uh, I'm not fucking leaving. <laughs> no, I'm not you're not. I'm coming and, back, damn it. Well, what pisses us off is we were le- leading up to something that it, it, it just kind of got th- thrown on the back burner because me and Matt wanted to lead up to the next collaboration, and that is kind of not being released right now. I know. Uh, Matt, why don't, you, why don't you get into that, Matt? What, what do we have going on next? Oh, well, what I have is a gauntlet of a schedule already planned out because I wanted to get as much out there as possible to limit the possibility of having to change shit around at the last second, which we've we've had to do, mostly during the pandemic. That was a big hurdle. But once Killers of the Flower Moon comes out, that'll just be a, a regular show. We'll bring Mike back. We'll, we'll record that. The week of, it'll be a brand new release like we did with Prey. But we're not going to leave Mike out in the wilderness for too long. You could even say that bringing him back is going to make my day. Because next year, we are going to be doing, with Mike, around the same time, 
Five Dirty Harry movies. It's a oh, franchise I can't that wait. I've been wanting to do for a long time as a big Clint Eastwood fan. And if I'm not mistaken, Mike has not seen any of them. I've only seen the first, but yeah. Only the first. first. Oh, man. I thought you were going to say he's coming back for Children of the Corn. That would have been great. <laughs> I don't even want to no. back to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are, we are very excited for that. Like Matt said, it's going to be around the same time next year. And I cannot wait to do those shows because I love it when we bring people on and they're watching movies for the first time. I think those make for the best shows. I think the series we did with Mike about M. Night Shyamalan was one of the best series we ever did because he was watching a lot of those for the first time. Now, we're not going <laughs> to lambast any of these dirty Harry films as much as he did The Last Airbender, or maybe he will. I don't know. I don't. I haven't seen a Deadpool in a while, yeah. but I don't remember good things about it. But it's uh, it's going to be a fun series to do, and you're coming back in the future after that too. Matt has this whole thing planned out through 2025, and you are coming back at least twice. So speaking of coming back, we should talk about what is coming up next here on the site. Now that we're into December, the holiday season, what better way to celebrate than with two things? Stephen King and James Cameron. Close out the year, we are doing first part of a multi-step process within Stephen King. That is the Night Shift book series. Uh-huh. It's a collection of short stories, including 11 fucking Children of the Corn movies. <laughs> because this motherfucker thinks we need to do every single thing. But the good news is we are not starting off with Children of the Corn. We are starting off with Night Shift Collection and Cat's Eye. We're going to call it the Stephenthology King Duo. Don't ask who came up with that. You can point your fingers at me. Okay. <laughs> so that would be Night Shift and Cat's Eye, two movies. We'll resume Night Shift right afterwards, but we got to return to Pandora because Adam really wanted to do the Avatar movies, and we do have the sequel coming out. Hard to believe it's actually happening. That will be our two shows to close out the year, and then we got a bunch of stuff going back to King and Night Shift to start the year. So we are going from Scorsese to Stephen King to James Cameron. Uh, God, this is all running together in my head, like <laughs> Dirty Harry going up against the Children of the Corn, Scorsese visiting Pandora. <laughs> well, he could, well, the thing is, he's not tall enough to get into any of the creatures. Oh. <laughs> all right, guys, this has been Blast, and until next time, if anyone's going to fuck my podcast, it's going to be me. You're not one for tears, and, well, neither am I, so it's best to come out with it. Let's be honest. It's all been a grand adventure, but it couldn't possibly last. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Well done. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Which would be worse? To live as a monster or to die as a good man? And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. I got this rat, this annoying, cheating fucking rat. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan.
Don't tell me I can't do it. Don't tell me it can't be done. Edited by Garrett. That's a sorry looking pelt. Voiceovers by Adam. This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. Perspective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male sex all over. way of the future the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future mm-hmm. how you doing mike uh i'm okay i'm pretty busy these days uh so yeah i can yeah, tell got a lot of pots in the fire Wait, no, the pot doesn't go in the fire. It goes on the fire. I don't know. Listen. <laughs> the pot does not go in the fire. <laughs> I got a lot of things going on. But. Mm-hmm. I'm like you. I went Christmas Day, and I had a similar experience as well. Matt? Mm. Oh, sorry. I was I was dozing off because this is a three-hour movie. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. So I... Mm-hmm. According to him, I heard in an interview with him, he took the SAG minimum of $60,000 to be in this film because he wanted to work with DiCaprio. He wanted to work with, Scors- with Scors- Scorsese. Easy for me to say. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is the kind of role that I think 20 years from now, if Jonah Hill starts making more movies, this will be something we look back on as a true turning point. And he's not out of the woods yet, Garrett, because we're going to talk about him in Lego Batman. Oh, and we're going to talk about how he turned down the Batman. Mm. Yeah, that was so – well, anyways, I don't want to go down again. Another bat rabbit hole, a bat cave or whatever. But, yeah, that was that was weird that he did turn that down. And it was so publicly, too. They were like – there was like a week of stories or two weeks of stories of, like, Jonah Hill being courted by Warner Brothers for the Batman. But who is he going to play? It's a debate. And uh, Richard Jewell uh, is another uh, movie that he was supposed to be in. Oh, wow. Uh, which is why he's – yeah, he's a producer on that. Him and Leonardo DiCaprio are both producers on Richard Jewell because they were going to do it together – with Jonah Hill playing Richard Jewell and DiCaprio playing the uh, the lawyer in that, who, oh. if anyone's seen that movie, is the Sam Rockwell character. Okay. Mm-hmm.
part as much as this film got a lot of controversy. And not just yeah, and go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Not just a few directors. Mm-hmm. And House of Gucci, I thought was good in a more kind of shaggy, flawed way, but. I thought both of his last two movies were good, and, and I think that him doing that in his 80s is very impressive. But even even that comparison is is one where you're like, damn, Scorsese. You know, you know, it's, yeah. Really, Scott, prior to The Last Duel, had spent about a decade floundering in the wilderness. I mean, to me, the last movie Ridley Scott made that I thought was just exceptional was his director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, which I think is actually one of his best movies, period. And if he cast anyone besides Orlando Bloom, I think it would be one of the best movies of the 21st century. I love that movie. And you're right about Orlando Bloom. So yeah. I, I'm with you on that one. But you uh, this, anybody yeah. else? I know. And apparently he wanted Paul Bettany, but the studio was not in it. Well, whatever. We don't need to get into this. Uh, we'll save that for another day. Uh, no, we won't. Uh, or maybe we will. I don't know. Mm-hmm. In a Scorsese movie. And to be honest, it's the best thing Rob Reiner has been involved in since he went after the tobacco companies in South Park. I just want to throw this out there just because I... I have a voice on a podcast right now. I have a medium, but I wish I can say this. I went to see LBJ, Rob Reiner's LBJ, starring Woody Harrelson. I saw that five years ago in Chicago at a Saturday afternoon screening of it. It was the oldest fucking crowd I've ever seen at any location <laughs> in my life. Uh, I seriously must have been the only person under the age of 65 there. I No offense <laughs> to anybody who's over the age of 65, but I just was like... So I, I was there, and it, it was just—I just thought I had to say that. Anyway, since I had a had a, had a voice in the podcast, yeah. so and, also. In his defense, the last Rob Reiner movie that I thought was really good was *The American President*, and that was damn near thirty years ago. <laughs> Long time. Yeah. Uh, this is also weird. Mm-hmm. I cried so hard watching *About Time* that the person I saw it with asked me the next day if I was okay. Now, I, I never mix up titles. I, that's something I'm weirdly good at. Is that the one? I always mix up the Justin Timberlake time science oh, no, fiction oh, movie. This is the one with Donald Gleason and Rachel McAdams. Oh, yes, yes. She, she isn't. Yeah, she's got like a – it's not a big role in that one, right? No, she plays one of the um, – I don't want to call her a side chick. She's one of uh, she's one of Kit Kat's friends. Okay, I have it's uh, that movie. I've only seen the one time. That movie, my main—I I thought it's all right, but my main kind of takeaway with it is that, like, genuinely, if you try and think about how the, the mechanics of time travel worked in that movie, your brain will leak out of your ears. Uh, yeah, that's, any, that's any time travel movie, basically. Oh well, but that one especially. I, we don't need to get into it again. Another, another, another avenue we don't need to to go down. We'll save that for our Richard Curtis series in <laughs> twenty thirty-seven. Um, yeah, yeah, and like, I uh, think that. I was just going to say, if we ever do, like, Garrett, if we ever do his Patreon, the top ten movies that made you cry the hardest, that would probably be in the top five. Oh, wow. Interesting. Like, it was it was bad. I'll make that list for myself later. Uh, nothing off the top of my head. But, um... Mm-hmm. And this is around the time that they start to get a little worried about having... Hold on just a second. Um, did we cover the FBI? That, didn't, that doesn't happen yet. Okay, sorry. Um... Mm-hmm. The, the, the greed completely overwhelms them. Yeah, and this whole scene of um, Jordan and uh, what's what's Jonah Hill's character's name again? Donnie. Donnie. Okay, Donnie. Donnie is his name. As in Wahlberg. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this whole scene of Jordan and Donnie. 